warning. This podcast contains spoilers for She-Hulk episode four and House of the Dragon episode three. Well, hello. My name is Rosie Knight and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we deep dive into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. You may have noticed that I am introducing the show, not the amazing Jason Concepcion, who is on vacation currently, but don't worry because he's joining us in the airlock for House of the Dragon episode three, then for Ask the Maester round four. In the hive mind, I get the absolute joy of talking She-Hulk episode four with She-Hulk writer and X-Ray Vision co-host and Emmy nominee, Cody Ziegler. If you want to jump around, you know the deal. Check the show notes for timestamps. And joining me today, only for House of the Dragon and Ask the Maester, is the wonderful Jason Conception. So let's get to it. We're stepping out of the airlock and onto the beautiful Stepstones. How wonderful this time of year on the Stepstones to discuss House of the Dragon, episode three. Second of his name, written by Gabe Fonseca and Ryan Condal, and directed by Greg Yatanis. We open on the Stepstones, where war rages. Damon and Corliss rule the air. They have dragons. There are boats burning. But the crab feeder, unfortunately, kind of a smart guy. Very smart. <laughs> and when the dragon... Very smart, man. And when the dragons approach, the crab feeder goes back into his crab cave with his men and they just wait and they shelter and they've been doing this for years. Damon, frustrated as he is, uh, does the classic thing that all uh, nobles in Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon era who are who are losing say, which is fight me one on one. Let's end this. Let's do it. Mono e mono. Me versus you, and let's just let that decide the whole thing. But of course, again, Kragas Drehar, the crab feeder, smart guy, he's not going to do that. We go back to Westeros, where a royal hunt is taking place in celebration of the second name day. Time goes Time so quickly. <laughs> Time moving, moving quickly. Second name day of Prince Aegon, the now two-year-old son of King Viserys and Queen Alicent. And the queen is also pregnant with their second child, Otto Hightower, and his brother, Hobart Hightower, are absolutely delighted at the, the level up in fortunes of their family. And the king and queen are doting over their son. And it's clear that King Viserys is very, very happy. And Hobart is like, um, soon enough, right? The king is going to name Aegon his heir, right? And Otto, hand of the king, Otto says, well, you know, I've been trying to get that to happen, but the, the king doesn't really see it that way. And of course, his uh, has named his heir uh, to be Princess Rhaenyra. And Hobart gives his brother Otto a very serious look and says, well, I guess you just have to convince him, seeing as your hand of the king. So pressure on that family, not just coming from Otto to Alicent, but from Hobart, who is the older brother, to Otto himself. Uh, enter Thailand Lannister, the twin brother of the Lord of Casterly Rock, with news of the latest debacle on the Stepstones. And the king is like, I'm on vacation, man. I'm like on a hunt. I'm just trying to chill. This, 
Just trying to chill. It's Aegon's second birthday. Shut the fuck up. The war has apparently been dragging on for three bloody years. Damon and Corlys need backup, but but of course they're too proud to act to ask for it. Uh, Driftmark, not a not a not a very populated island, so it makes sense that they would have uh, sellsword levies as a significant part of their army, and and clearly they don't want to hang out any longer, despite the payday. And the king's attitude is, well, you went and did this yourselves. This is your decision, Corlys and Damon. So go ahead and get yourself out of it. Thailand is like, hey, it's really bad. Uh, shouldn't we send some aid? Damon is uh, like a tyrant now and his men are mutinous and Otto jumps in and is like, hey, Damon went half cocked. It's a bad look for the crown if the king has to step in and makes him look weak. And we don't want to look weak right now. And King Viserys, meanwhile, is like, where's my daughter? Where's Princess Rhaenyra? Princess Rhaenyra is in the Godswood, Rosie, doing the thing. This was one of the more relatable things I've ever seen in a uh, Game of Thrones slash House of the Dragon uh, slash George R. R. Martin show, which is reading a book and just listening to the same song over and over. Yeah, and over again. the moment when he's like, would the princess not want to hear another? And she's like, no, no. the princess would not play it again. Play under the dragon's eyes one more time. That is what uh, Princess Rhaenyra is doing. She's in the Godswood and she's asking for the, the international heater under the dragon's eyes, which again is about the uh, historic hero, Nymeria, who is, uh, of course, a huge cultural figure in Dorne and a, and a hero and well-known figure all throughout Westeros. Allison comes in to see her and we get this uh, a real power, like a, the, the precursors of what clearly is going to be a power struggle. Uh, the queen is like, hey, minstrel, please leave. I'd like to have a private conversation with Princess Rhaenyra. And Princess Rhaenyra is like, uh, musician, no, you're not leaving. You're not going anywhere. And then they have a fight about it, kind of like a little uh, tete-a-tete about it. And then the musician eventually leaves. So the queen wins this round. Alicent brings word that her dad, King Viserys, wishes Rhaenyra to join the family on the name day hunt. And in fact, uh, orders Rhaenyra to join. And... Uh, Rhaenyra is clearly unhappy about it. But Alicent, again, is really trying to keep this friendship alive. And she's like, we don't, and none of it needs to be this way. Like, you don't need to make it this way. We can still be friends, even though, yes, I did marry your dad and I'm currently pregnant with his second child. And now outrank you and can just be like, the queen says so, queen's better than yeah. princess. Sorry. They take a carriage ride, of course, out to the Kingswood. It is bumpy and it's awkward in there. The king is... Uh, already pretty drunk uh, and he's talking to Rhaenyra about how much he can't wait for her to get pregnant. Uh, Alicent is like, hey, it's not that bad. I'm do- it's the second time we're doing it, it's not that bad. You know, not counting the times, all the times that your mother was not able to carry a child to term and then, of course, died. In uh, doing this. murdered it's- by your dad. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's, so it's actually not that bad. Like, just ignore that part of it. Uh, so a weird convo here. Uh, Alicent strangely is like yeah Aegon just slid out yeah <laughs> I also like, like the women and the the nurses are just looking at her like what the fuck man like everyone's like, like they just don't do it it's bad this is bad uh the king reminds the princess of the royal duties that she's gonna have to uh, uphold during this trip and the princess in a little bit of a a, a tiff is like no one is here for me they're all mm-hmm. here for Aegon it's mm-hmm. the Aegon's name day and she's right because they pull in 
to uh, this uh, this vast royal hunt. There's pavilions. There's hundreds of people there, and applause breaks out as the king and queen and young Prince Aegon come off the caravan. Uh, the reception later uh, takes place later in the royal pavilion. The king notices Jason Lannister, who's the Lord of Casterly Rock, and he's uh, a very arrogant uh, man. He is leering at the princess like she's a sandwich. Uh, Laris of House Strong, who we're going to get to know, a.k.a. the Clubfoot is there, the youngest son of Lionel Strong, Master of Laws. Now, Rosie, this was so well done, this character work right here. So Laris um, obviously has a, f- a physical disability. Um, and notice how Laris comes in. He's like, oh, you know, this hunt's not for me, obviously, because of my my deformity. Uh, is it okay if I just sit here, ladies, where this very sensitive conversation is taking place? I'll just sit here <laughs> where the like, where some yeah. of the, where, where some of the most confidential conversations are taking place about goings on at the highest reaches of Westerosi power. I'll just innocently sit here and listen to this. And they just immediately continue on. It's like all the highest ladies from the highest families chime mad shit, spilling yeah. mad secrets. And he's just chilling there. He's like, I'm so weak. I couldn't possibly have ulterior motives. Yes. But just right. even though I've lived with this clubfoot my whole life and I'm probably pretty proficient at doing everything with yes. it, I, I just need to sit down right now. I just, I have to sit down right here. Keep an eye on this one. Um, uh, there's a little bit of a uh, disagreement here in this conversation where Lady Redwine uh, opines about uh, the king and the, the current situation of the Stepstones. Uh, she's like in a kind of, uh, in a kind of mean way, asks Princess Rhaenyra about Damon. Princess Rhaenyra is like, I haven't spoken to Damon in years. Uh, and she, you know, she's complaining, Lady Redwine is, about the state of the Stepstones and whether the crown should step in. And Rhaenyra is like, well, what are you exactly doing mm-hmm. to help the war effort? Which was interesting. But also I thought, uh, you know, the Redwine fleet is an important fleet in the Royal Navy. So I don't know if this was necessarily the wisest comeback from Rhaenyra, considering that the family fleet, I, you know, obviously Lady Redwine is not on the ships, but like the family's fleet is an important fleet for the realm. But I think it just goes to underline the kind of disconnect that Rhaenyra is feeling, despite the fact that she was triumphant on Dragonstone now three, two to three years ago. Yeah, I think it's that classic kid thing as well of like, I can talk about my family however I want and be pissed at them, but right. you can't. And that I think kind that's of, exactly right. I also find it very, I find it to be a very interesting scene because generally I feel like this episode is a re- another really great Rhaenyra episode showing her kind of anti-establishment rebellion mindset that is going to kind of yeah. go on to define where she's going. But this definitely shows a little bit of a lack of the cunning that someone like Alison has. I agree. And the, you need... These women should be your allies, even if they suck, even if they're disrespecting Damon, who, like she said, she hasn't spoken to. So why do you still have that loyalty? Obviously, we know, and people listening who who know the story are going to understand where that comes in. But yeah, I found this to be very interesting because I feel like it was a rare misstep for her in an episode where she's kind of forging her own path, but in a way that for the most part looks like it's going to do her quite well. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's like, 
obviously, Alicent has Otto, who's a, uh, a, a, a quite a strategic thinker. Rhaenyra doesn't really have that kind of person in her corner. Mm-hmm. And again, she's a teenager. And you really feel like th- what happened on Dragonstone in the previous episode now several years ago, if she would have had someone like Otto in her corner, that triumph should have been broadcast all around the realm. Yeah. Oh, did you hear what Princess Rhaenyra did on Dragonstone? How she saved the day, no bloodshed, got the egg back, got Damon out of uh, Dragonstone. All of that stuff should have been just trumpeted that far should have been and wide. More, but we said yeah. no one's going to sing songs about it. No one's going to talk yeah. about it, mostly because she's a woman, also because of the yes. drama around the air. It, it makes me really sad because I do think Renice could have been that person but her own yeah i would have loved to see that that's in my idealized version not based on any canon but no i agree with you her own connections to what could be the crown and and the dreams that she and Coralis have it's just never going to be that but you're so right because that's that moment like when we saw it as impactful as it felt to us if that had gotten around that's like a danny making moment but without the bloodshed she didn't have to say dracarys she didn't have to kill hundreds of people she called damon's bluff and she saved hundreds of lives but and she rode a dragon which was badass but like nobody cares nobody knows it's irrelevant now there's a two-year-old walking around uh rhaenyra uh, steps out of the pavilion to get some air. Jason Lannister is there and he's like, hey, how are you? I, uh, by the way, I want to shout out the one Asian extra that we've seen in the background of almost every episode right now. They're the royal stuff. I see you, girl. I see you. What's up? Uh, shouts to you. Jason Lannister comes up and he's like, hey, <laughs> hey, uh, why don't you come see Casterly Rock? Yeah, it's such a nice seat of my house. Maybe I'll build a dragon pit for you. You know what I mean? And Rhaenyra is like, why? And Jason's like, so my queen and lady wife can have a dragon. You know, when we stay there, I'm talking about you, babe. And Rhaenyra's like, okay. He's the worst. He's got no game, nothing. (laughs) Just absolute like weird creeper. Doesn't even have the Lannister looks that we have come to know. Like there's nothing. It's just, it's not there yet. The Lannisters have not grown into their terrible really, yet handsome selves. Really makes you appreciate Tywin right? as a as a mover and shaker in that family. And of course, like Tywin, it's interesting because Jason is, it's a family that has kind of made its legend, uh, you know, Land the Clever famously like conned uh, the Casterlies out of Casterly Rock. So they they have this reputation for being very, very clever and subtle and and somewhat devious. But also, like, the history of the Lannisters is full of, like, people like Jason who almost squandered the family wealth. Uh, Tywin Lannister's dad was exactly like this. So, Tywin, uh, we miss you. Um, so, Rhaenyra goes, storms up to her dad, the king, and she's like, what, are, you're marrying me off to the likes of Jason Lannister now? What the fuck? And they have a big argument in front of basically uh, the entire, like, nobility of the realm, certainly the ones that are here for the name day. Uh, the, the the king is like Jason Lannister. It's a great match. What are you talking about? Castle Rock, the rich, and she's like he's arrogant and self serious. <laughs> the king comes back with, "Well, I thought you might have that in common." Oh, it's a <laughs> roast, Rosie. <laughs> shots fired! Shots fired! Shots fired! Uh, the king is like, "Listen, I'm drowning in marriage proposals." 
every day people are writing me, they want to marry you. And we need to do something about this. You at least need to like start taking these meetings. Otto steps in just as the disagreement is about to get really, really ugly. Uh, and he shuts it down uh, it, it, with news that the royal huntsman has sighted a white heart, which is kind of like the king's stag of the king's forest. And a very, very good sign, folks, that means we got to kill this white stag. Yeah, it's got to die. And in the law, if the king kills the white stag, then it would mean that Aegon, his son, is the rightful heir to the throne. And that's very important because of the events of what happened in the rest of the episode. That is that is how people would interpret that That sign. is how they and, could interpret it. And certainly I think they, listen, they, one, a significant number of, I think, people around the realm would interpret it this way. And two, Otto would make sure they hear about it. That's what it. I was going to say. Otto, yeah. there's, there's, it's not a coincidence that Otto is the one who brings him this news. And Otto is the one who wants him yes. to kill it. And Otto is the one who's like, by the way, I think I read in a book that like, <laughs> you know, yeah. you can imagine him worm-tonguing. He's like, you know, I heard in a book, yes, like if you, if you yeah. do that, it's like a prophecy. Because I know you love prophecies. Yeah. And like... If you do this, then it means that Aegon's going to be a good king. So, like, cool. So off they go. Uh, the princess uh, is like, I'm out of here. She needs to blow off some steam. She jumps on a horse and and just rides off into the woods. Kristen Cole, Sir Kristen Cole, uh, does his duty and follows her. Uh, the princess tells Kristen, uh, eventually when they kind of settle down, what, what the issues are. Cole very humorously is like, you want me to kill Jason last tried to kill him. That's like that the cutest flirtation. The I know, cutest right? flirtation we've ever seen in Game of Thrones. Like law. Would you like She's me to like, assassinate I, him? I could kill him. You want me to kill him? I'm like, you should just say yes, actually. In Game of Thrones, it's probably better for you if you just say yes, babe. They uh they get to know each other a little bit. Cole talks about his life. He he says that uh, you know. Uh, I was never a high status enough person to marry a, a person of noble birth. And now, of course, because of the oath that I took uh, as a member of the King's Guard, I can never get married, never father children. I can never have sex, although they're breaking that rule all the time. Let me tell you, Christian, don't day. worry about it. All day, every day, they are breaking that rule. As the men of the Night's Watch are also breaking that rule. There's a reason why Molestown has a brothel. Uh, they're, bre- they're breaking that rule all the time. Rhaenyra complains about how little authority she has in the realm, despite the fact that she is the uh, the heir. And especially now as Aegon is is growing older and, and providing a focus for other people to project their uh, their aspirations of the realm onto. And Cole says, hey, you got me to the King's Guard. That showed you have some real authority. So it feels like these two have, have a real bond there. And certainly that Cole is uh, is very grateful for what Rhaenyra has done it's for not her. it's not certain because we don't know a lot about Cole but he can definitely maybe be that a part of that ally that she needs even if it's not even if it's not the cunning Otto style this is the episode where we that. see she has yes. one person on side that's right uh meanwhile the hunting party is on the trail of this white heart Otto is just so psyched that they might find it uh meanwhile the king is drunk someone so drunk. has to tell the king to stop Drinking. We know uh, what happens Jason, when a king drinks on a hunting party. We have learned this good. lesson We've before. <laughs> We've seen it. Uh, Jason Lannister steps to the king as the king is on his uh, throne drinking, and he's got a, a gift, a freshly forged spear. 
And he's like, hey, uh, I hope that you get to stab the white heart to death with this spear that I have had freshly forged for you. Also, uh, I'd be a great husband to Rhaenyra. And, you know, you, uh, your house would have the benefit of my added strength. And the king is like, do you think we need your strength? We have dragons. Do you feel that uh, we're weak? And Jason, not even realizing that he has stepped in it, continues to he dig this He walks in straight into the trap. Straight into it. Casterly Rock is a splendid seat. Uh, Rhaenyra can take her place there by my side without shame. Uh, and feel herself well compensated for the loss of her station. The king's like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, uh, when you name Aegon the heir, like, it won't be a big deal because she, she'll have this great house of Cashley Rock. And this is where Viserys' patience runs dry. He says, listen, Rhaenyra is my heir, and any suggestion that she will not be my heir is essentially rebellion, which is punishable by death. So... Are you coming here to report rebellion to me? Yeah, have your banners men been saying Rhaenyra is not a good heir? Like, are you questioning me? Jason gets, uh, at that point, starts to pee just a little bit, and and then the king lays into it. He says, listen, I named Rhaenyra my heir, and everyone needs to remember that. Now bring me more wine and get the fuck out of here. Uh, Otto comes over. Uh And Otto, here, Otto usually... It's, is a very well i i was about to say he's usually his timing is very good and i forgot the time that right after the king the the queen and infant prince balon had just died and he came to suggest that maybe we should think about succession okay so his, here's his another- timing's good unless he's feeling greedy his timing can yeah, be good but he gets blinded by greed and here's another that time. is a that is exactly that's exactly correct. Otto comes up right after Jason and says, "Hey, we're closing in on the stag. Uh, uh, and what did you think of Jason Lannister's proposal? He seems pretty good, right? Uh, the The princess will do uh, whatever you command, whatever you order her to do. She'll do. You're the king, and the king is like, I don't want to command my daughter. I want her to be happy." Uh, and then Otto keeps going, not reading the signs here. He says, "There's another choice beyond Castle Rock." Uh, and get this, marry the princess, Rhaenyra, to Prince Aegon, no! my grandson, who is two years old. <laughs> Targaryens do this. You know that Targaryens do this. And the king is like, he's, hold on, he's two. And it's very clear by the uh, the king's attitude and the way he is speaking to Otto that Otto needs to back off and Otto indeed does back off and the king continues to drink and drink and drink and drink. Yeah, I also think this is very interesting. We talked a lot about how this show does a lot of character work. I think that this moment is very well set up by the failed, uh, the failed kind of coalition that Coralis sent over because yeah, look, Alison is still a child, right? But, the idea of marrying a 12-year-old was very disgusting to Viserys. Yes. For some reason, he couldn't make the realization that they're still he's still old enough to be their granddad, let alone their dad. Yeah. You know? But I think they set it up really well here because like, he just laughs in Otto's face. Like It's the dumbest yeah. shit he's ever heard. He's just yeah. like, what the fuck? That's never going to happen. He's two. So it's those little bits of seeding here. And also Viserys, actually, I love this moment because it shows like he really... Despite all the politicking, the drink, everything else, he does like really respect his daughter and he just knows he does. that that it is like a does. fucking no-go. It's so bad. And Otto really shows his uh, nasty little hand here. 
Also, I think everyone, auto included, are underrating the king. He Viserys for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for for as for as kind of like non-authoritarian as he is, is not dumb. He realizes that Jason Lannister and now Otto are pitching him marriage proposals that directly yep. benefit them. This is exactly exactly. Uh, obviously, it benefits Otto if we marry Princess Rhaenyra to Otto's grandchild. Like obviously, yeah. that's. Th- it's also interesting because, like, it, it in this moment though, like, this is the first time that Otto's done anything that would also benefit Rhaenyra. As grim as it is, yeah, yeah this as is, grim as it is, this is sort of like in the gate in the law of Game of Thrones in the world. This is his olive branch of like, look, they can right. both be heir, they can both sit on the throne, they can do this together if we have this horrible incestuous child marriage. <laughs> and and you know, like. It, we should also say that while it is like he, I'm sure Otto is like, this is a great deal. This works for everybody. It's also a deal where left unspoken is the fact that Rhaenyra would be the queen consort, not Yeah, the she would be. It, yeah, it, even queen consort, even like queen regent, depending, because she was already yeah. the heir. Like the whole, but she's never yeah. going to be the ruler. This this just doubly yes. cements Aegon's place, but allows Rhaenyra to stay an heir. Though the heir to what is the question? Um, then Sir Lionel comes up uh, and he brings news that Sir Kristen went after Rhaenyra, so don't worry about it. She's probably fine. Uh, and the king is seething at his daughter's rebelliousness. He's kind of feeling bad for himself at this point. And Lionel, um, it, you know, quite generously points out that, hey, uh, King Jaehaerys, your grandfather dealt with this as well. He had multiple daughters, and this is true, he had multiple daughters that were kind of, uh, they bucked the kind of traditional role uh, uh, that are, is expected of uh, royal women, and they had their own lives, and those lives were often seen as scandalous to the, to the, uh, to the throne, uh, and this gave Jaehaerys a lot of heartache, uh, and Lionel says, it's tradition, your grace, and that, and Viserys kind of, uh, nods at this and takes that in. And then Lord Lionel says, hey, I also have an opinion, by the way, about the uh, the marriage issue with Rhaenyra. And the king's like, oh, 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 let me fucking, I can't wait to guess. <laughs> let me guess. Your son, the future Lord of Harrenhal, Harwin Breakbones, who is called Breakbones because he is uh, the strongest knight uh, in the realm, you sh- he, that is who Rhaenyra should marry. Am, do I have that right? And then Lionel's like, no, actually, you know, that's very nice of you to, uh, to say that. But no, I, I think that uh, your daughter should marry Leonor Valerian of House Valerian. Uh, he's got the Valerian blood. He is the son of your niece, Princess Rhaenys. He's rich. He is the heir to House Valerian, which is the, the uh, most fabulously wealthy in the realm. And of course, this would help bring Corliss back into the fold. Uh, just we hopefully Leonor doesn't buy it on the stepstones. You know, that's the only thing. And the, the king is absolutely slammer drunk, but he, he, you can tell he's grateful for once today to get some advice from someone that doesn't benefit the person who mm-hmm. is giving him the advice. Like this yeah. is just good advice. This is this is another very interesting watch that person moment because Lionel Strong, this advice is like so legit 
and so without agenda other than to protect the realm that it kind of reminds us of characters that we've seen in Game of Thrones past who will do anything to protect the realm and that puts them in a very perilous but powerful place. I love this match, by the way. I know what happens because I've read the books, but I'm a fan of this match. And what we see at the end of the episode kind of hints that they could potentially be a good match in more ways than just a political one. I like the match as well. In fact, it's what it's it's almost like why has no one proposed this right? before? You know, you know, like it's probably seems because it's so- too much of a good, strong match. It makes Viserys so much yes. more powerful and it and it really seats the Targaryens in this power that while they have it at I the moment, they it. take for granted. But this would be like a Valerian it. powerhouse match. I think that's it. Otto and and the rest of the people around the king don't want this to happen because it weakens them. Also, dragons, 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 dragons coming together. Dragons, dragons, absolutely. I mean, you you know, we shouldn't uh, let's not discount the fact that Aegon being Otto's grandson, also you know, Viserys' child, but still Otto's grandson. This puts a dragon potentially. You know, maybe two dragons because the the queen is pregnant. This puts two dragons, you know, under the heading of House Hightower. So that would be that's a big deal. It changes Um, the it changes who a dragon rider can be. It changes who they are seen as being. Uh, In the Kingswood, Kristen Cole uh, continues to try and convince Rhaenyra to go back to the hunting camp. Uh, And the princess asks Cole if she thinks, if he thinks the realm will ever accept her as ruler. And he gives her what I think is a pretty bad answer. I have no choice but to. Okay. Uh, just say yes to this. This is one of just those. Say yes, just say yes, please. Like, you can just say yes. You can just, or you just can be like, yes. we'll make them. You can do some Jamie Lannister yeah, style, we'll make- like sexy power answer where you're like, yeah, we will make them. Yes. Um, then, a, then there's a pig attack and I hate just when happens. this happens, but of course, Casual. But this does happen, as we know from as we know from uh, the end <laughs> of Robert King Robert Baratheon's life. Pigs do attack out here in the woods, uh, and Cole and the princess then stab the shit out of the pig. Meanwhile, back at the royal camp, uh, drunken King Viserys is staring into a bonfire. The queen is like, "Are you okay?" Uh, and the king is frustrated because he named Rhaenyra his heir out of love to save the realm from Daemon, which is honestly like, thank you, King Viserys. And now everyone is up his ass all the time. And he knows somewhere inside of himself that there will probably be a war over this. Uh, you know, and he says that he tells Alicent about the dream. Uh, uh, doesn't tell her. Well, it tells, tells Alicent about the dream that he had about his son, when he told to uh, Queen Emma that his son would be born with King Aegon's crown on and that that they'd place the child upon the Iron Throne and yada, 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 all the dragons would roar. And now he wonders if this dream that he had used as his North Star has led him astray. And surely, also in his mind, it led Queen Emma, who is his love, to her death. Uh... He and he says, I never imagined that I'd remarry, that I'd have a son. And he says, What if I was wrong? And he's talking about this dream now. The next morning, the hungover king, uh, they they uh stabs an off white stag, a beige stag. The huntsman, unable to locate this, yeah, this it's white definitely heart, has not located the white heart. 
No question. <laughs> Definitely not, unquestionably not the white heart, but, uh, you know, uh, Otto has been so concerned about symbols and perception, and it's not a great, uh, whoever is witnessing this scene, a hungover, probably still drunk King Viserys, not being strong enough to stab yeah. a stag that is completely tied down, like cannot go anywhere. It's a very pathetic it, moment, actually, just in general, like to have to go on a hunt and have men tie down your stag so that you can kill it. It kind of goes against everything that the hunt is meant to stand for. But you also feel yeah. really sorry for the king in that moment because he also doesn't want to kill it. And it's not the yeah. kind of stag he's been promised. It's, it's very sim- lots of symbolism in this episode. And this is a very sad moment. Meanwhile, the princess, uh, her face and hair caked with the blood of the pig that her and Sir Kristen killed, stopped to rest. They can see the royal camp in the distance. And just as they are standing there, the white heart symbol of royal fortune and, and, and kingly virtue and authority clomps up a few meters away from them and just stares at them. Kristen starts to draw his sword, but Rhaenyra tells him no, and the stag runs away. Uh, and then they stroll into camp with the pig dragged behind them. Uh, looking like victors coming back from war, Rosie, I ask you, was this the right decision from Rhaenyra to, to not kill the stag I now? think in the, in the short term of, if she had brought that stag back and had killed it with her own hand, which I feel like she kind of would have after we saw her yeah. stab the pig, in the short term, that probably would have put a lot of people on her side because of the superstitions mm-hmm. around the white heart. But in the long term, with the way that we know that animals and humans can connect in Game of Thrones, I think this was the right choice because I think that we saw a respect, a mutual respect between her and this white heart and the white heart looked her in the eye. It was yeah. a very chills kind of like direwolves-esque. I don't think that white heart is going to become her companion, but I feel like there's, an acknowledgement that Rhaenyra is the rightful heir to the throne. The question is, how will she get to that throne and what does it mean? It's kind of the monkey's paw thing. What yeah, will that I, um, acknowledgement lead to? I, I kind of feel very similar about it. I think that if she came back into camp with it, if she was prepared and had the allies to send the message that, oh, doesn't this symbolize that Rhaenyra is the rightful heir? Doesn't the rightful heir killed this symbol of mm-hmm. kingly rulership and authority? Um, if she had those allies that could broadcast that message, I think that that would be a great thing to do is come back yeah. in the camp with that heir. But seeing as how probably what would happen is Otto would say, hey, did you hear that uh, the white stag symbol of royalty was killed on the birthday of my grandson, oh, King Aegon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, future King Aegon. I, and and I think he would clearly use that. So it's a yeah, tough I one, was, but I understand. I, was, I understand why she said, "Don't kill it." Me too. And I also do think that we kind of saw her early on saying she didn't like hunts, and and it kind of is again. It speaks to her character, where I feel like she has more respect. Mm-hmm. For nature. Also, the other thing is it could be a little bit of the beginning of that cunning because I think you're right that not only would Otto have used it in her in his favor, but he could have also seen her killing it or coming back with it as a huge threat and it could have put her life in danger. I think that she might just be starting to understand the space that she is in. 
as the heir apparent, especially as her dad for the moment and good on him for Sarah is like, is actually standing by it to the yeah fury of many people. <laughs> many, many, many people. Um, the king and the court return to King's Landing. Otto goes to see Queen Alicent and he makes some small talk about the hunt and Prince Aegon and then he pushes his agenda. Aegon as heir. We got to get Aegon named heir. You got to do it. You got to convince the king to do it. Aegon has united the kingdom. You see the hunt. You see how everybody was so happy that Aegon exists. And Alicent is clearly very cold to this. Uh, Otto says, you know, he continues. He's like, the realm's going to tear itself apart if Rhaenyra ascends. Uh, Alicent, again, is very supportive of her friends. Says like, Everybody swore to her. The whole realm swore to her. They knelt and said that they uh, swore obeisance to her. And Otto says, that doesn't matter. She's a she. Uh, you have to convince the king. So Alicent goes to see the king. The king is hungover. Uh, Alicent uh, brings, she's she's like, I want to talk about something. Uh, and the king thinks she wants to talk about Rhaenyra, which is probably true. But then Alicent sees a letter from Vaemon Valerian, Corlys's brother, begging for help on the Stepstones. Uh, the war is going badly. Uh, Damon and Corlys are flat out losing. So Alicent, says something, I think, very wise to the king. What would you do if you could just do whatever you want? And the king knows that uh, no matter what he does, and this is this is a, a really telling uh, scene for where the king is. Mm -hmm. He's We've watched him be completely isolated from everyone this entire episode. He knows that no matter what he does, someone's going to be really, really mad. Mm -hmm. And then Alicent says, uh, I think something very wise here. She says, is it better for the realm if the crab feeder thrives or is vanquished? And the king makes a decision. So the this next is, day, the king sends up. Yeah, no, I just that's really interesting as well, because earlier on we saw her dad say, don't fucking do that. He was like, this yeah, makes you look weak. So she is actively going against her father, but not in a malicious way, in actually like with a very good bit of wise decision making. I agree. And it's, and it's one of those... You talked about the monkey's paw. This whole episode is like a monkey's paw. Everybody has what they want, but now having it, they realize that things are worse than they ever have been. Mm -hmm. King Viserys has a male heir, but now everybody's on his ass to name that male child his heir, and he is bedeviled by this. Princess Rhaenyra is the heir, and yet she finds no one respects her. Otto has managed to place his daughter on the throne. Mm -hmm. And yet now she has a mind of her own, is not listening to him, and is in fact giving the king advice that directly goes against the advice that he had just given the king. So it's like everybody is fine. And then Damon and Corliss are on the stepstones of their own accord and are trapped there and are mm -hmm. losing a war. So everybody has has accomplished the thing that they were setting out to do, but only to find that it's, it's an empty victory. Um, the next day, the king sends a letter of support to Damon. Uh, you know, they're sending supplies, they're sending ships, they're sending men. Princess Rhaenyra and the king have an argument. Rhaenyra says, like, you're getting ready to replace me with Aegon, your son. You want to ship me out of here to Crastley Rock or whoever else you can manage to take me. And the king, very, very supportive, Rhaenyra says, no. Mm -hmm. I, I want you to be content. I want you to be happy. Uh, Rhaenyra then makes actually a good point that if if this was about happiness like if if marriage uh 
was about just a tool of state. If you were just going to marry me purely strategically, like, why didn't you, you would have done that for yourself. You would have married Liana Valerian. And he says, that's a good point. That's true. Uh, and so the king then insists that, listen, marrying, it's the right move. We need to sh uh, shore up your support, show the realm that there's stability here because you are going to produce heirs. And then in a very touching moment says, go, go find whoever you want, mm -hmm. follow your heart, just find someone that you can fall in love with and I'll support it. And he says, I swear to you now on your mother's memory, you will not be supplanted. A really, really beautiful moment for, from father to daughter. On the Stepstones, the Targaryen-Valerian alliance is showing its cracks. Corlys insists that they have to press the attack while awaiting the reinforcement. This is one of the quietly funniest moments in the show. Corlys has had some really funny moments. Corlys is like, we have 16, uh, maybe 18 ships. And just as he says that, you see... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see that you see like a crab feeder like catapult shoot at, like a flaming rock into one of his ships and destroy it. Just, <laughs> just as he's like, so we got 16 or eight, 17, 18 ships, and this it's like right over his shoulder. One of his ships is getting absolutely murked. Yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> this is like a really interesting moment because I feel like and up until now we've had a very small cast of characters, and Corliss has been on the edge of it, but we start to understand a little bit more about the Valerian family and yes. the conflicts and contrasts and the agendas that each of them have just in this really small scene. It's very cool. So Corliss is like, we got to press the attack while we're waiting for reinforcements and stuff. Triffmark, Leonor is like, no, the crap feeder's position is too strong. We've been doing this for two, three years. We can't get into the caves and our hired soldiers don't want to do a mop-up operation fighting for every inch of the caves while they die in large numbers. Like, they want the easiest fight possible. And we have a, we have dragons, so why aren't we... We have to figure out a way to do this easier. Here is my plan. Leonor then proposes something. He says, we bait the crab feeder out. We get them to mm -hmm. leave the caves, and we finish them off. We But we have to send somebody in as bait. And Vaiman Valerian is like, that's not going to work. It seems like there's maybe a mutiny uh, about to go off until Cordless kind of settles everybody down. And then Damon lands. He's come from another strafing run on the back of Caraxes. He looks at the demoralized troops. Just then a messenger from King's Landing arrives. Damon reads the letter. It is the letter announcing uh, the king is sending support. And Damon then loses his shit and beats the brakes off the messenger. Isn't there, Rosie, there's a saying, right? about the messenger something don't, about they deliver yeah, bad news that, and don't, don't do beat something. the messenger with your metal armor <laughs> helmet don't be, no, I think it, don't shoot the messenger by yeah, beating him to that. death you know i think we had it yeah alas damon has not heard that saying and that not guy heard gets that fucking that's, smashed not heard that that's an unwise thing to do this is also a small book change in the books damon does beat the messenger but the messenger arrives with news that the king uh, and Queen have a son that they mm. then named Aegon. So this has been changed a little bit. I like this because um, it, see, it seems like the king is, it seems like the king is helping him because it's his brother and that's how he sells it to Rhaenyra. But you realize from Damon's reaction that really it's shady as fuck. Because it's yeah. basically also, like, it's basically like, hey, you can't do this. You haven't done it for two years. So I'm going to come in and help you out. And obviously Damon's like, fuck you. And then we see what happens. 
that is exactly Damon's attitude was I tried to do something on my own mm-hmm. and I was not mm-hmm. able to accomplish it. And now there's help coming. And so uh, Damon is like, well, I guess I'll be the bait since this is my last chance to get this done before help arrives and add this to, you know, my resume. So Damon heads over to the crab feeder defenses past the ruined bodies. He's carrying a white flag. He seems like he's going to surrender. Crab feeder comes out to see what's up. Uh, Damon takes out dark sister. He's holding it up, but it's clear that uh, he's offering it up as a, as a symbol of his surrender. And this is also, Again, this is a Valerian steel sword. There's not they're not making more of these. So no. that kind of like you makes it probably, an even richer. Yeah, this is like an even richer you prize. Know, you should know they're not gonna give it up, but at the same time, you couldn't not come out just in case he was gonna give up. Like you, yeah. you ha- it's a very smart uh play. And of course, this is all a trick as the crab feeders men are coming out uh to surround Damon. Damon then goes like absolutely super scion and goes like one V 30 guys, like kills like 30 <laughs> dudes. Meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, uh, Leonor Valerion on sea smoke is strafing everybody and Corliss's ground troops get into it and the battle rages. And then later we see Damon who has pursued Kragas Drehar into the caves, dragging half of Kragas Drehar, the crab feeder out onto the beach. Might not um, be a good idea, but we'll get into that in a minute. R R I P the crab feeder, uh, and uh, Damon got it done. Shouts to him. Uh, really, uh, our first real battle episode, yeah. and it looks great. Also, let's give let's give some credit to Leonor because he said Damon should be the bait. He this was his plan. He comes in was with the save. If anything, this to me, on a completely objective, not any context from outside of the show, this to me just shores up the potential for him to be that great match. Because this is going to, this is going to be told, Coralus is not going to not let this get back to the king. What really happened? I I completely agree. And the other thing is how often it was clear as Leonor was strafing and diving on the back of sea smoke and like yelping with glee as he was doing it, how rare it is to see someone like really happy and thrilled that they're doing something. And Leonor was like having a grand old time on the back of sea smoke. I could see him. I could see him and Rhaenyra flying their dragons together. You know, it feels, it feels like they have this shared interest in, in being kind of like the, they like to come in with the save. They've both done it now for like uh, one against Damon, one for Damon, you know? It's very interesting. Very interesting. And again, this is, a, this is an episode where I, it, you, I really rue how Rhaenyra, really to no fault of her own, squandered what was an incredible victory on Dragonstone and is now at the point where everybody's completely forgotten about it, like forgotten about it. No one talks about it. It has not been, it, it, she can't use that as part of her resume to be ruler. It's just the moment has completely passed. It was an incredible victory. And now she's competing literally with a baby who people can't wait to put on the throne. Yeah. And has done nothing. I wonder as well. 
if this actually could be a sticking point between her and Liano, because he will surely be cheered as a major part of that victory in a way that she never was. Mm. And that kind of constant being pitted against other people, I think is just absolutely decimating her kind of self-confidence, but also interestingly decimating like her care about the throne. She's very devil may care in this episode. She kind of doesn't really give a shit. And And I feel like that could serve her very well in one direction or serve her very badly if the wrong person comes and tells her what she should care about. I wonder how much things would change for her if she understood how much support Queen Alicent really is giving mm-hmm. her behind the scenes. Like, is is doing legitimately everything that she can do to support Rhaenyra as a friend and even, like, though kind of indirectly, as the heir, is yeah. saying all the time to her dad, listen, uh, the king wants this. This is the king's decision. And the king is kind of set in his ways. She's not really taking a position for herself, but is saying, like, the king has decided this. Yeah, I I know it's not going to happen because they're not going to stray this far from the books. But, like, there's the way they're playing it in the show so far, you could almost see a world where Alison and and Renera are the ones who end up coming together to work out a way for them to both sit on for them to both have the power of the realm it's not realistic it's not going to happen but they they sell it so well and Alison the depth of character they've given her and the loyalty that she has to Renera and also just the great arc that Renera is getting as this kind of like frustrated but not beaten down yeah. queen. I would just love to see that as the the surprise. I don't think it's going to go that way, but it's it's really fun that they can even make us question what we know is going to happen just by how well they're rounding out these characters. Yeah, and the other thing that you re- we it's like easy to forget is these are like 16, 17-year-old mm-hmm. girls. Like they they are kids and are forced into this position where they are have great influence on matters of state that are super, super important. At the same time, they are still just kids, like trying to do the best that they can. Okay. I'm going to ask you the big question, which I feel like is the the crab feeder. He's dead. RIP the crab feeder, which is kind of crazy. RIP. That was like a big antagonist for these first three episodes. I did not see the death coming. RIP. We got to see him. You're, I know you're going to give us some good facts about his mask because that's some really cool shit. But what about his bad skin? Because I feel like we're watching it and we're thinking, that's grayscale. You have to think, it looks kind of like grayscale that's been healed or been taken off. So what do you think about it seems, that? So it seems as if the actor has confirmed that that is grayscale, although we don't have a, a uh, it's, we're looking for an authoritative answer on that. We can't see it, but absolutely right. That does look like grayscale. And uh, if we, the, the origins of Kragas Drehar, where he's from, are kind of obscure, but we can, there are certain context clues. The, uh, the mask, which is very similar to the Sons of the Harpy mask, which would seem to suggest Slaver's Bay, uh, something of the old Gis culture. And in that area of Essos, they would have, people are very, very familiar with grayscale. And while it is very hard to cure, 
we have seen that it can be cured. Yeah. You know, Stannis uh, notably uh, spared absolutely no expense to cure Shireen uh, and managed to do so, although the, the um, you know, the evidence of the disease still remained on her, but and, as it seems to have on the crab feeder. So I think it's, it's, we can assume that because of the familiarity that, uh, that the crab feeder, because of where he's from, where we can guess that he's from, would have had with Grayscale that it seems like this is a cured case of Grayscale, though, although mm-hmm. he, his skin still looks pretty rough. Yeah. Um, but it's it's absolutely reasonable to assume that this is a cured case of Grayscale. And if you, if you, I'm getting into Ask the Maester a bit early by asking you questions, but like, yeah. okay, what do you yeah. think about, I think another big thing that we're all wondering is like, Damon drags him out skin to skin. So is yeah, it fully yeah. cured? Is that going to come back to bite Damon? Are we going to end up in a Damon with grayscale situation? Uh, that is, you shouldn't, well, once it's cured, it's basically inert as we saw yeah, with Shireen. Yeah, it shouldn't right? be Shire- able to Shire- be passed yeah, on. Yeah. Shireen's, Shireen had the markings of grayscale in her face, but was not passing the disease on to anyone else once it had been cured. That said, <laughs> you still shouldn't do this. This is like, you know, a bad idea. Be, yeah, yeah. Be careful with this. Uh, uh, don't touch that. But <laughs> again, this the people in this world are familiar with what this disease is, and certainly the Targaryens would have mm-hmm. been, you know, very familiar with what this disease is. So I, I guess, I, one is to assume that Damon, if he recognized Grayscale, would would look at uh, Kragas Drayhar and say, "Okay, this is a non." transmissible form of the disease, a cured form of the disease, and I can touch this guy, but still, you shouldn't do that. That's great. <laughs> you shouldn't please don't touch do that. that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please don't do that. Okay, let's go to, uh, let's go to Ask the Maester. Celebrate Brew Good Work Week with Crooked Coffee's first ever sale. Nothing gets us in the fall spirit like a good steaming cup of joe. So Crooked Coffee is having a sale to help you make it through the shorter days and long to-do lists we have coming up. Now, through Sunday, September 11th at 11.59 Pacific Standard Time, never forget that date, you can get free shipping when you spend $35 or more with the code FUELUP, F-U-E-L-U-P. As always, every Crooked Coffee order supports Register Her an organization working to register and activate millions of women across the country to vote, head to crooked.com slash coffee and stock up on some delicious dark or medium roast while supplies last. That's crooked.com slash coffee. U.S. only. Exclusions apply. We're returning to the Citadel to answer your questions. Okay, first question. Eric asks, if the Iron Throne can reject people and cut them, are we to believe the throne viewed anyone who sat on it during Game of Thrones, specifically Cersei and Joffrey, as worthy? Why were they never cut by the throne? This is a great and interesting question. First of all, we should we should note that we're talking about a chair made of blades and that small nicks and cuts were surely like common and it would probably only be the ones that were either serious or happened to a ruler who people were already predisposed to not like. Those were the ones that we noticed. That said, let's 
let's talk about this idea that the throne can reject someone. This is based primarily on one example, and that is the mysterious death of Magor the Cruel, the third Targaryen king. As the supporters of Jaehaerys Targaryen were closing on the capital, Magor, who still held power at that time, was holding a council of war with a few commanders, the very few commanders that were still loyal to him. They left him late into the night. And uh, the next morning, Queen Eleanor, who was one of the so-called Black Brides, one of this trio of women that he uh, that Magor had married in order to increase the potential for him to uh, create an heir, uh, walks into the throne room and she finds Magor dead on the throne. Now, the world of ice and fire, which is kind of like a compendium, a, a kind of a examination of all the places and histories of, of places geographically in the world of ice and fire, uh, describes Magor's end as uh, th- thusly. It says Magor had, quote, his arms slashed open by the barbs of the Iron Throne. Now, Fire and Blood, the history book upon which uh, House of the Dragon is primarily based, describes it this way. Quote, his arms had been slashed open from his elbow on jagged barbs and another blade had gone through his back to emerge under his chin. Now, we should add that the world of ice and fire, the picture in the world of ice and fire does show also the blade coming out from through his back and under his chin. But it's not described in the text, Uh, you know. So whatever the case may be, those things seem like they align, although it's really the it's really the barb through the back that is the mysterious one, right? So the last people to see Magor alive were Lord Tower, Towers of Harrenhal uh, at that time, that line is extinct, and Lord Rosby of Rosby. Uh, now, th- by that point, Magor, it was very clear that he was going to lose. And also, he was widely reviled by basically everyone. He was seen as an accursed figure. Um, so... If we go by the description of what we see at World of Ice and Fire, that it's just that his arms, his forearms, his wrists were torn up by the, by the chair, it's possible that this is either an accidental death, you know, or he took his own life, or potentially Lord Towers and Lord Rosby killed him in a way that would look accidental, right? This is a, a more mundane. In other words, it is possible that Magor died in a more mundane way. Now, when you add the fact that apparently a blade from the back of the chair changed position and stabbed him through the back. Now we're starting to enter into a magical realm. And so when we go to your question, uh, Eric, which is why weren't Joffrey, why weren't Cersei cut? Let's, let's take it from a magical standpoint. It may just be one that, uh, first of all, Joffrey and Cersei's reigns were very, very short. Mago ruled for six years, which is pretty short for Targaryen kings on the shorter end of the spectrum. Joffrey reigned for, according to the books, like uh, like about two years. And Cersei, we don't know because the books haven't gotten there. But judging from the show, shorter. much shorter, much shorter than Joffrey. So they wouldn't have a lot of chances to be cut by and, and or rejected by the throne. And secondarily, I think if we do take a magical explanation for Magor's end to the throne rejecting him because he was such an accursed figure, a kinslayer, who, you know, had gone into a, a very, very destructive religious war in Westeros with uh, the um, supporters of the Faith of the Seven, that we should remember that magic by the time of Game of Thrones had disappeared from the world. And 
it the the linkage between dragons and magic, while it's not like concrete, is heavily implied, and it's heavily implied in Game of Thrones and the A Song of Ice and Fire books that it's the rebirth of Danny's dragons that brings mm. magic back into the world. And as we've seen from House of the Dragons, magic is a much more present thing, not in the sense that we're seeing magical events taking place, but we hear Viserys talk about the blood mages, right? We We see that People talk about magicians, mages, magical events, and and take dragons as just part of the world. They see those things as just kind of being normal, even though magic is not like, you know, there aren't magicians like conjuring things all the time. So all of which is to say during Magor's time, we should assume that magic was stronger and uh, whatever happened to him, if it is indeed of magical origin is in some way linked to the fact that magic at that time was just stronger, a stronger presence in the world. Okay, Aaron asks, this is, this is a good one. I bet a lot of House of the Dragon people are wondering this. Yeah. There's a lot of Aegon Targaryen in the history of Westeros. Could you give a quick explainer on all the Aegons? So Aegon the Conqueror obviously is a, a legendary and just a titanic figure. And after conquering Westeros uh, beside his two sisters, Rhaenys and Visenya, uh, it has become like a byword for the right to rule and authority. I don't want to go, go into all the Aegons because I think there's some spoiler stuff there. But I will say that Aegon is, it's a very common name amongst the Targaryen family. And there are many, many, many Aegons. And there have been five Aegons, including the Conqueror, who go on to rule Westeros. Some of the uh, the most interesting ones are the last two. Aegon uh, the Unworthy, who is the fourth Targaryen uh, named Aegon to sit on the throne. Uh, he was a, a, like a prisoner of his own appetites. He loved mm. sex. He loved eating. He loved drinking. He was a glutton. And he produced a lot of bastard children, and he made the tremendously unwise decision to uh, legitimize them all towards the end of his life, which caused just a series of succession problems, including the uh, really destructive civil wars called the Blackfire Rebellions, of which there have been several. Uh, and this all happened primarily because Aegon the Unworthy legitimized again all those bastards and the the main one being Damon Blackfire one of his uh, most famous uh, bastards who he also gave Aegon the Conqueror's sword Blackfire too which led a lot of people to say well I guess that guy should rule then because he also he has the sword of Aegon the Conqueror yada 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 uh then came Aegon the fifth Aegon the Unlikely we talked about him a bit when we talked about the kind of um the Baton Pass of mm. the Aegon Prophecy from ruler to heir. Aegon V came to power in a very interesting way. Again, there was no clear heir. And so the lords all got together to decide who should be next. The throne was initially offered to his brother Aemon, who passed and then went to the Night's Watch to become uh, Maester Aemon uh, of the Wall. And... We talked about the idea that Aegon V, Aegon the Unlikely, uh, who then became king, and uh, uh, and his brother Aemon, and uh, the uh, the person who became uh, the Three-Eyed Crow 
And then Brendan Rivers, who was, uh, by the way, one of uh, Aegon the Unworthy's bastards, um, all seemed their movements and the way that Aemon passed the right to rule to his brother. And then the fact that they all went to the wall and that this all happened at, uh, during a really, really bad winter, which marked the beginning of Aegon V's rule, all seems like a reaction to this Aegon prophecy and some sort of plot by them to prepare for the potential that this winter that they were in the midst of could be that kind of apocalyptic winter, mm. the showdown between fire and ice. Um, so all of which is to say, because of Aegon the Conqueror's, it, you know, history-changing success in Westeros, it is, it, it's just a fact of life that Tar the Targaryens, in order to kind of seem as if that they are the inheritors of that authority would name their kids Aegon as much as they could. It's kind of like why there have been like 11 King Edwards, 12 King Edwards in England. Like, <laughs> Yeah, lots of They just Henry's. keep reusing these names. They just use yeah, the same many name. Symbolism. Symbolism, baby. Um, okay, Heather. Heather asks... I'm curious about the succession laws of Westeros. Do they specifically preclude women from holding the throne or seats of power, or is it just tradition slash patriarchy bullshit? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of both. The Great Council of 101, which uh, we saw opening our show, um, selected King Viserys as the, as the, the heir to King Jaehaerys, rejecting the claim of Princess Rhaenys. Now, this is a slight change from the books. In the books, it came down to... Um, Rhaenys was rejected in earlier rounds, and it came down to Leonor versus mm. Viserys in the final. And But regardless of that change the outcome, what the realm took from that council was essentially the same. And that was that at this huge council, this great meeting of, of uh, more nobles than had ever been gathered in the history of Westeros together to make a decision, the decision was made that succession passes through the male line and that women can't inherit the throne. That was the, that was the message they took from that. Now, in the books... I would argue that that was that was actually the wrong message they took because uh, Leonor was like seven at the time. And so really what the realm was rejecting as much as rejecting inheriting through the female line, because uh, part of the reason that they said Leonor could inherit was he was uh, coming to the throne through his mother, Rhaenys. Mm -hmm. So Rhaenys was rejected. And on the same basis that Rhaenys was rejected, that that uh, authority can't pass through the female line, authority then can't pass through the female line to the son of the female, that being Leonor. So therefore, Leonor also could not be uh, king. That said, Leonor's age was also a significant factor he was seven. That would meant mm -hmm. a regency. That means you, you put together a ruling council of different nobles who would rule in the name of Leonor until he comes of age. And that is very, very messy. Uh, it, it leads to a lot of power struggles, could easily lead to war, uh, assassinations, etc. It's just not it's just a thing the realm would seek to avoid. So in the books, even though the realm took 
the lesson that, uh, okay, the female line is rejected. What they should have also taken is that we should avoid regencies. Let, like, let's, you know, we should, like, if there's an adult that we can make king over a child, mm-hmm. let's prefer to do that. So your answer is basically, yes, it is patriarchy bullshit, but it is also tradition as as codified by the Great Council of 101 and previous decisions. There were also previous councils and previous decisions that had kind of like moved in that direction. But it was really the Great Council of 101 that that set that into law. Okay, this is more of a comment than a question, but I do think it's an interesting one. So Michael says, I have been watching Hot D with a friend who is a nurse practitioner. And by episode two, when they showed Viserys' hand, she said, oh, he has diabetes, wounds that won't heal and losing extremities. This episode makes a point to note his rich diet. Sounds like a wrap to me. So Jason, do you think he has diabetes? <laughs> do I think he has diabetes? I think it's, uh, I, I wouldn't put it, I, I think I would not put that past uh, 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 the king as a possibility. Uh, gout was yes, gout, often I referred think is to. high up on gout, the list. Gout is, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, we're not doctors here, but gout is often a pre-diabetic uh, illness and it has been called the rich man's disease. And Henry it would VIII not surprise got gout me. A, got a lot, and we yeah. know this is taking a lot from his kind of real life. So would not surprise me if what uh, Viserys is, is suffering from is gout. Uh, that's a great comment, Mike. Yeah. And okay, so this is really interesting. And I think we kind of touched on it, but not got too deep. So Mason asks, yeah. do you think Rhaegar chose Lyanna because of Aegon's Song of Ice and Fire prophecy? Would Rhaegar have told Lyanna about the prophecy and the importance of their son? That's great. It's, it is a great question. I think... I want to be careful here because I think the thing about Rhaegar and Lyanna's relationship is that it was mutual. Yeah, that it it's was the consensual. rare, pure, like yeah. actual love match, even if it I came they, from a place that maybe had that mindset. I, I don't want to, I really, even though we don't know, I want to be careful and not frame it as Rhaegar choosing her. I think they chose each other. I think they fell in love with each other and that, the passion of that, once Rhaegar took note of her lineage, it seemed to support, I think, what Rhaegar already knew about the mm-hmm. prophecy. So did he tell her? We have no way of knowing, clearly. But I think he did tell I her. think he did. I think, the I stuff think he we marched know off to war. Their, their yes. closeness and their love and, and how it kind of goes against every other relationship we've seen in Game of Thrones. I, I think he told her. I think he told her, I think he marched off to uh, fight at the Ruby Ford and understanding that he might not come back, told Liana, here's the importance of this. And not only that, but then had her, like, had her ensconced safely away from the fighting at the Tower of Joy, this remote area of Dorne, with three members of the Kingsguard, which tells you this is the future king. I think all of that leads you to believe that he would have shared this yeah. with her. Now, the question is, and I don't have a good answer for it, did Liana then tell Ned in her dying moments, the promise me Ned moment from the books, which we know about, but we don't know what was said. D- 
it, in her as she's dying in the so-called bed of blood, does she tell Ned? I think she probably tells Ned. Certainly, she tells Ned th- that uh, Rhaegar did not kidnap me. We were in love. We got married. This is his rightful heir. I don't know if she would have told him two things. I don't know if she would have told him the prophecy, and I don't know if Ned, having heard the prophecy, would have given yeah, a shit. Yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's not there in that hundred year lineage. To him, he would have just been like, yeah. "Okay, sorry, you're dying. Like you're, you're right, right. living on vapors. Like what are you talking about?" Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's true. I'm I'm really interested to see if we ever get a confirmation on that from yeah. George because I, I think that's it it draws so many interesting questions that I think everyone wants to know. I think it's likely that if let's say Liana told him. I think probably the way Ned would have received that is here is my sister who I dearly loved and the child who she also loves and I will do anything to mm-hmm. protect him and this stuff about the prophecy and yada 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 sure. it's Whatever. I don't. Yeah. I think it was more about the fact that this is his sister's son and that he wanted to protect her and less about this kind of prophecy, which I doubt he would have put in any stock into. Yeah. Okay. So lectionary asks, this is cool. I like this kind of, I like this kind of pondering. Seeing the chess-like figures when Rhaenyra was evaluating the knights in episode two made me question, are there chess-like board games in Westeros? Yeah. In the books, there's a game called Sivas, which is basically that world's version of chess. It originated in the free cities of Atlantis and then actually came to Westeros pretty recently, at least recently in the history of the story. Traders brought it to Dorne about three years before Robert's Rebellion, so in the last years of King Aerys, the Mad King's reign. Uh, by the time of the book Feast for Crows, which is the fourth book in this in the series, uh, the game had become... Uh, really a fad amongst the nobility, the Westerosi elite, like people were learning it in the, in the court at the, at uh, King's Landing. Uh, We see it being played at Dorne. Um, And we also see that Tyrion is playing it amongst uh, the various sellswords that he's hanging out with uh, during Dance of Dragons. But that would make sense because over in Essos, where the game came from, you would imagine that it would be more popular with the kind of uh, more common classes at that time. The game has 10 pieces, the most powerful of which being the dragon. But we really don't know how the rules work. And uh, George R. R. Martin hasn't really clarified how exactly the game works. But um, certainly by the time Feast for Crows happens, it is, we understand that it is a popular game and it's a game that people are playing quite a lot. Uh, and it seems to be a game that people are using at, in that world as a metaphor for strategy and as a metaphor for the kind of uh, broader conflicts that are going on in that world at that time. Okay, Trevor asks, I'm sure this a lot of people are wondering this as well. Has the Stepstones War been going on for two plus years? How far away are the Stepstones from the Driftmark? Pretty close, right? It's not that there was a ton of travel time for Coralus ships to reach the Stepstones. So is there is a two to three year war that's not technically even a war normal? Yeah, it's it's first of all, the Stepstones are not really that close to Driftmark. From a logistics standpoint, um, it's a little bit of a nightmare for Coralus to have to constantly be sending ships down from Driftmark to the Stepstones to resupply. Uh, 
And the other part of this is that Driftmark, as we kind of said during our recap, it's not a, though the House of Valerian is incredibly wealthy, the island of Driftmark is not like rich in population. Mm. Uh, so there's not this like vast supply of manpower that Corliss can call upon, which is why, as they note, that the, their um, their ground forces are significantly amplified by sellswords, which we imagine they get from Essos. On top of that, who's footing the bill for this? Do we think that Damon <laughs> is, is opening his wallet for this? Probably no, right? Like Damon's bringing the dragon, and, and I would imagine Damon saying, well, I'm bringing the dragon, and you guys can bring the ships and the money, right? So it, this, it, all of which is to say this is a real quagmire for Corliss and Damon, that their manpower is, is significantly buoyed by people they hired, not people that are loyal necessarily to them. And secondarily, how can, how can Corliss pull out? His strength is at sea. All his pri- it, what he is known for is, I am the most badass captain that has ever lived in this world if he gets defeated in a sea campaign yes there's significant fighting on the land and the way the crab feeder is resisting is by hiding underground that said what people are going to take from this is corliss valerian got defeated at sea yeah that can't happen that he can't let that happen uh because you know westeros and and this kind of like feudal um, power structure is highly competitive and it would be an immense loss of honor and station if Corliss retreats from this fight that he willingly entered into. He has to win. He has got to win. And it is, um, is it normal for a war to, to, uh, go on for this long? Yeah. Um, Aegon the Conqueror came to Westeros with three dragons. He conquered Basically, the entire continent, you know, everyone, including the uh, the North, bowed to him, except for Dorne. Dorne used much of the same kind of strategy that Crabfeeder is using now, which is don't enter into open warfare with dragons, hide from them when they appear, and when they fly away, come out and harass the forces that you can see, but don't enter <laughs> into these kind of like set set piece battles mm-hmm. with dragons. And guess what? Dorne is not part of the realm still to, to this day, 100 years after Aegon the Conqueror came uh, and will not be for, you know, years after this House of the Dragon story is over. So, yes, it is absolutely the case that dragons can be resisted. And we should not forget the fact that um, one of the, uh, the dragons that Aegon came with, uh, the dragon of, of Queen uh, Rhaenys, died over Hellholt in Dorne, shot through the eye uh, by a scorpion stinger. And we don't know actually what happened to uh, Queen Rhaenys. It's, it's, there's a lot of rumors. Did she die when her dragon crashed into Hellholt? Was she held prisoner? There is like a very, very secret letter that was sent to King Aegon that he read that no one knows the contents of that some, that is, we can suspect had to do with Queen Rainey's, but we don't actually know what happened. All of which is to say dragons can be killed. Dragons can be resisted simply by hiding from them. So it is not, it is not weird that this war would stretch on for two or three years. 
That is it. Don't miss the new HBO original series, House of the Dragon, now streaming on HBO Max. If you have more questions, of course, uh, we welcome them. Please send them to askthemaester at gmail.com. Up next, a conversation about She-Hulk between Rosie and She-Hulk writer and X-Ray Vision co-host Cody Zig Ziglar. This week in the Hive Mind, where we bring on experts, usually me and Jason, with some guests to discuss their work and more, X-Ray Vision is thrilled to welcome back our good bud, She-Hulk staff writer, Emmy nominee, Spider-Punk headbanger, general incredible person, and of course, X-Ray Vision co-host, when we're lucky enough to have him, Cody Ziegler, to talk about episode four of She-Hulk, which is maybe the best episode yet, definitely the funniest. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure knowing that we're going to yell about (laughs) things that are both dear to our heart, which is comic books, so... Uh, it's a perfect way to spend a uh, afternoon. I feel like we're going to do a lot of yelling this episode. <laughs> I feel like it always happens. It definitely, me and you are big yellers and talkers anyway. Yeah, yeah, so I feel yeah. like when you put us in a room, it's like we can get very excited. Okay, so before <laughs> I want to talk about episode four, obviously, because it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's going to be out when the episode's out. There's, every episode of the show is my favorite episode as we go in, but four <laughs> is currently there. But first... Because I feel like we never really got to talk about this when you were on the show more regularly as one of our amazing mm-hmm. co-hosts. Like, how did you get involved in She-Hulk? What was that arc like for you? Uh, I mean, it's a very, it's a very uh, funny and like weird story. Uh, so, like the long, the, the shortest answer is that like I was producing podcast and for the show called Yo Is This Racist, and one of the co-hosts, uh, Tony Newsom, she had booked the show Space Force, so she had to go shoot in the desert basically for like four months, and she was like, "Hey, do you?" Um, Want to be a guest host on this because uh, it'll just make your job easier since you're already producing and cutting it. It's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And I did it. And the other co-host, Andrew T, was like, hey, um, I can't tell you what it's for, but someone heard you on the show and they thought you were funny and they wanted to know if you had a sample. I was like, great, sure, let's do it. So I gave my sample. Uh, but before that, maybe a week before that, I had met Jessica Gow, the showrunner, um, at like a dinner. We hit off. We followed each other on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then, like, maybe a month later, uh, my manager called me. He was like, hey, uh, Marvel wants to meet with you. I was like, me? Why? Did, did, they, did they get the right Cody Ziggler? Like, yeah, dude, I guess you're going to have to figure it out. And I walked in, and I saw Jessica there. She's like, oh, hey, what's up, dude? I thought you were funny. I heard you on the show, and I wanted to know if you had a sample. Uh, welcome to the big leagues. And, like, that's how I got the job was basically she – we met eating way too much food, and then she thought I was funny, and she asked me to be to be in the room. And, like, my role besides – um zeb wells was very much the mcu comic book nerds mm-hmm. in the room so like whenever they needed like a, a uh, like a villains for the week like oh wrecking crew or like yeah. this character like we were very much those guys and then they're like all right great now calm down and let the adults go back to like doing the real i work. just then in that case i have to thank you because like the wrecking crew are like god tier in our house so that was like <laughs> i was like screaming and i have lots of like theories about that going forward but i love uh, that that so got funny. to be your role because that is really that's how we both ended up on this show we just (laughs) love this stuff and we talk about it a lot so yeah yeah yeah, it's the it that's kind of the dream and jessica's so great like i got to interview Uh, her for the for the junket her and cat and they were both just Mm -hmm. when you speak to them you just immediately understand how the show is so good yeah you just you get the vibe so funny like she's so funny and like she she, for my money i mean obviously i'm biased because i wrote for the show too but like i think 
She wrote my favorite episode of Rick and Morty, which is Pickle Rick. Of course. Like, you watch that and you're like, oh, yeah, she knows Dude, what she's doing. Like When I found that out, I was like, wow. I was like, I have talked to a legend because my <laughs> nephew, one, obviously, I probably one of the most iconic episodes of Rick and Morty, yeah. which means it's one of the most iconic episodes of adult animation. But yes. my nephew loves Pickle Rick. My nephew yeah. has Pickle Rick toys. My nephew <laughs> sings the Pickle Rick song. Oh, my, that's so funny. So like when I found that out, I was like, I'm going to get cool points. I was like, aside <laughs> yeah, from the fact yeah, that the show is just yeah, great. Yeah. So we're going to be four episodes in when this airs, but three episodes mm -hmm. in, how does mm -hmm. it feel to like see, you know, we follow each other on social. We see yeah, all the yeah. fun memes. We send them to each other and stuff. <laughs> but like, how's it been for you to see people just embrace the vibe of the show and the comedy and the tone and just something that's totally different than what we've seen in the MCU before. Dude, it's, 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 it's so fucking surreal. Like, cause like, you know, this, like we wrote this in like 2019 was like, yep. our, like November, 2019 was like the first day that we started. So like we wrote this stuff and this is before like, you know, really, I think Gal said this all the time. Jessica, I call her Gal. Gal says this all the time. She's like, Vision walked so we could run. It's like no one, it's no one expected like this level of shit post. Like that didn't exist back then. Like you just wrote a show that you thought were funny, and like mm -hmm. you didn't think that anyone was gonna latch on to like Vision wearing like a black turtleneck and, and making him like a, <laughs> and the uh, chain. Like a black fraternity. Yeah, like no one would have would have pictured that. So like we didn't picture that like people were gonna latch on to like you know step on me, mommy. Like we know that was gonna be the the energy for social media posts for for the show. So it's been really cool seeing like people like really dig it, and also just like seeing like the real like she-hulk like you you know you're on set and you see tatiana in like the gray like gray makeup and stuff on like platforms you're like i don't know how this is gonna like be a real thing like how does this work like mm -hmm. i've seen it happen but like you know and the moment you're like you're looking at like playstation 3 graphics and you're like oh man how does this become a real person and then like so you like the vfx team puts in tons and tons and tons and tons of work and makes it a real thing and like now that people are actually out and, and enjoying it, it's been really cool. Um, I'm, I'm super stoked. Like, it's been a very, very surreal, surreal year. Yeah, I, I, you're definitely right about how the the shitpost conversation set you guys up so perfectly to be in conversation <laughs> with fans in a way that, like, none of us could have even seen. Like, the memification yeah. of the MCU is incredible. And so, like, again, you know, it's funny because I'm just like, how does it feel to be part of the MCU? You mentioned, like, you are a fan of this stuff. So what's that side of it been like being uh, in the room dude. and shaping, like, she's like an iconic character. Like, we forget a lot of the MCU began with, like, what were essentially B, C, D level characters yeah, because yeah, of yeah. licensing. She-Hulk was up there above pretty much yeah. most of the characters that we started the MCU with. So how does it feel mm -hmm. to be part of the MCU but also be bringing this, like, such an iconic character to life? Uh Dude, I mean, this was the end game. Like the end game mm -hmm. was getting mm -hmm. the MCU job. Like that would be like really my first, my first big staffing job was kind of crazy. Um, again, I cannot praise Gao enough for putting me on and giving me like my yeah. first shot. Like the room was fantastic. Um, you know, majority women, majority black women, which is like just rare in Hollywood. Um, uh, and like really letting, <laughs> letting me flag my freak, fly my freak flag as high as I possibly could. Um, she's already told uh, the the story, so like it's not a spoiler now, but like. There was one day they were trying to, they were, they were, we were talking about Daredevil in the room. Like, hey, like, how does his power work? Blah, blah, blah. Like, what's his vibe? And I just happened to have Mark Waite's uh, uh, oh. comic in my backpack. And I pulled out, you know, the scene where, like, he's walking with um, Foggy. Um, yeah. It's like the, the double spread. And, like, you see his powers and stuff. Like, this is how it works. And, like, they all, like, stopped. And, like, you have to calm down. Like, you cannot be the guy <laughs> Please that pulls chill out, out a literal comic book in the middle of a conversation. Like, we appreciate the enthusiasm, but you need to relax. <laughs> 
So like that was very much me every day being like, I'm going, like I made it. Like I'm I'm going to Disneyland every single day and hanging out with some of the funniest, most talented writers that yeah that, that you that are in the game right now. That would definitely be me. Like I would have to be doing having my ultimate filter on because every single yeah. second I'd be like, oh, like issue 236. Like, oh yeah, yeah that right? character. Let's make sure yeah. we put in a a John Buscema Easter egg, a Sal Buscema yeah. Easter egg. Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like you know, you're you're reading the room and stuff, and like, um, I really like one of my a good friend that I really made in the room was was Zeb Zeb Wells, who's you yeah. know writing Amazing Spider Man now. But like, he would be sitting next to me, and like during lunch breaks, I'd see like I'd be seeing him on his computer typing away. I'm like, what is that? And like, I'd see like a giant spread of like Ant Man fighting like three giant giant bugs. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm writing comic books. Like, this is the art that I get in for my next issue. And then like, oh, right, you can do that. Like, this is how it works. Like, yeah, man. Do you when I write comic books I was like duh like, <laughs> like honestly like that room also is what got me into like writing comics like that that's so how cool. I like I Zeb saw me pull out a comic book he's like all right he's one of my own and like he's how he put me in contact with the Spider-Man offices so, like it's it, really everything that I've been doing right now I've, I've got because Gal took a, a shot on me and put me in the, the place to make all these connections and, and make some really good friends that is so rad and kind of talk well, I guess we'll we'll jump into making new friends because I feel like <laughs> The, M- the MCU's new BFFs are introduced in in episode <laughs> yeah, yeah, four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before we get to them, because they are the best part, Wong is in mm. Madison. You will all be knowing Madison's name very soon <laughs> if you haven't already. But um, yeah. the episode starts with a very funny Easter egg that answered, a, well, a very funny kind of joke that answered a lot of questions. You know, you know how this stuff is. I am, mm. the, uh, this is like basically most of my job is just, Working out what's this, what's that, what does this yeah, relate yeah, yeah. to, where did this come from? So there had been a lot of like, a lot of people have been very excited because they'd seen something that they thought said Johnny Blaze in the yeah, trailers yeah, yeah, yeah. leading into She-Hulk. <laughs> I had noticed that it didn't have enough letters to be Johnny, so I tried to temper people's uh, expectations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is actually something that may be better than Johnny Blaze, which is Donny Blaze, the shoddy magician, <laughs> who somehow got his hands on a sheet on a sling ring. So could you talk a little bit about that and how fun it is? Because it just sets up this episode so brilliantly and just yeah. adds that that comedy that we know is really going to be at the forefront. Yeah. So, so this was actually like this. Is, so this was written by Melissa Hunter, um, one of the a fantastic uh, writer, actress in her own right. And this was actually, I think this might have been like the second script written wow. in the room was like Melissa. So like, you know, one of the big things that that Gal was that Gal was sort of like was really into is like, you know, we're She-Hulk should be L.A. based because one, we live in L.A. And also like <laughs> MCU, everything takes place in New York. And like it's a joke to go like the West Coast Avengers. Like you very rarely get yeah. to hang out in L.A. So like, yeah, let's have fun with this. And like, you know, we, we really want to hit all the like some of the like L.A. specifics like Magic Castle. Like that's a. That's a thing that's really known out here. Like, it's a very specific type of person that would be into that. <laughs> it's also a very specific type of person that, like, can't even make it to the Magic Castle. Like, yeah. the, the junior leagues of Magic Castle. So, like, that'd be fun. And, like, you know, the, the whole conceit of the show is that, like, it's a it's a episode or it's a uh, uh, a trial of the week or a, yeah. a thing of the week. So, like, it's it's through and through a sitcom from up and up top to bottom. And, like, I can't remember how we got into the to, to it, but we we're like, yeah, it'd be funny if like there's like there's got to be dropouts, right? That went to like the Mystic School of the Arts that like couldn't cut it or like <laughs> flunked out. Like you know, well, we can't imagine that Doctor Strange was like the only guy to like sort of like cause a commotion there. It's so, like, yeah, well, if we got a guy that made it like two semesters into magic school, and got kicked out, and this is like this is like his grip now is like working these things, and like that's sort of like the conceit of the show, and that's where it all came from. So like, once you get that in order, like once you get the the comedy engine in, you can just add in any funny thing you want to, and like. Um, Melissa would do this really funny pitch in the room where she would like 
Wonger should have like a, a like this like party girl that meets her and like he should be like named Madison and like she would always do this joke that made it into the episode. She's like, My name's Madison with an I and out of a Y, but not the one you think. Yeah. Like she used to do that and like we would laugh so hard in the room and like we were like she was like, Yeah, we gotta put that in and like she she made it in there. So like uh, all the funny stuff in the room is like uh, it's just like basically taking all of our toys and like little sandbox and smashing them together to like the best comedic effect. Yeah. So speaking of Madison, who I do love. And everyone will be saying it soon. Yeah. Madison <laughs> with two N's and a Y, but not what you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she, so she is the unlucky uh, guest of, you know, Donnie mm-hmm. Blaze, who opens a sling ring, makes Madison disappear. And you think that might be the last of, that you see of Madison. But lo and behold, yeah. Madison ends up on Wong's couch where <laughs> Wong is trying to watch The Sopranos in a very relatable Yes, uh, last we've all been there. Three years. We've all, <laughs> yeah. and, and Madison is a is a perennial spoiler, which I love. She just can't yes. help it. She's excited. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about how fun it was to be in the room when kind of working out that dynamic between Wongers and Madison? Wong, this kind of reluctant, <laughs> but also like very fucking funny. Like Benedict is yeah, so yeah. great. This kind of reluctant, cranky guy, but who like he never tells Madison to leave. Like he yeah, wants yeah, his yeah. best friend. Yeah, yeah. But you get the sense that he likes that he likes that he likes to have like a new friend around. Yeah. Like that was very much some of the fun that the fun of the game was like pitting out this guy that, you know, when Strange first came into to Comatage or whatever, he was like the he was like the new fresh guy and like Wong was like the stick in the mud. So like it'd be fun to like have that sort of those roles reversed. And also like it's just like a classic comedic pairing. You put like this like sort of Stick in the mud that also doesn't mind letting his hair down, like you know the big fun runner that sort of just popped up out of nowhere through all these movies. Is like Wong does not like he's not sticking around for like the big fight. He's like <laughs> I'll let these, yeah, he's he's not like I'm out, peace, y'all, y'all handle this. So like it'd be very funny if like someone plopped in where he couldn't get away from her. Like he's always like she's always following him, and like you end up like, becoming begrudgingly best friends. And like that was just like just a fun comedic conceit that like you know you get a bunch of wackos in a room like yeah we gotta see you. we gotta beat this in the ground as much as we possibly can. Yeah, and you talked about like the the kind of legal comedy aspect, which I feel like really comes like episode one and two, you're establishing it, but three and mm-hmm. four, you really get to have that fun, like Boston legal esque, like yeah, wacky yeah, yeah. trial of the week. So, and this is, I feel like, really good comic book stuff. Because a lot of the <laughs> stuff that She Hulk actually serves in the comics or represents in the comics is like very boring. It's like trademark yeah. law, it's cease yeah, and desists. Yeah, yeah. So, this is yeah. perfect because Wong calls up Jen and he's like, look, I need to cease and desist Donnie Blaze from using a sling ring, and calling himself like a master of the magic arts. And that's yeah. the, kind of the trial we get into. So could you talk a little yeah. bit about bringing that? Because that's the f- most unique thing about She-Hulk is it's very slice of life and ground level, mm-hmm. even though it's superhuman law. Yeah, I mean, like, first you got to give a shout out to the comics, like the Dan Slott run is like yeah. where a lot of that stuff came from. And like Gal, that was really like her vision for the show. And like, yeah, it definitely didn't hurt to have like an actual lawyer in the room. Like uh, uh, Barbara Curry, uh, one of the supervising producers, like what she did practice law wow. before she became a TV writer. So like whenever we would get to those scenes, we're like, all right, what do like adults do when this stuff happened? And she, like, <laughs> give the like real pertinent information. Like, all right, now we can like make it make it funny. But like, yeah, you know, that's the perfect like that's usually like the, the perfect formula for like a sitcom, like, you know. You know, uh, Cheers has the bar. Like Seinfeld has like the the uh, the cafe. Even I guess Friends has like their like cafe they hang out with. So, like, you know, the the like sort of like story anchor engine for this is like the courtrooms. Like that's mm-hmm. what you you come for. Like you get a little bit like the legal stuff. You get your jokes in, but then like you get to go and like follow the fun as opposed to like 
uh, actual procedural where you would be in the room for like four or five acts for like really heavy stuff. And you're yeah. like, this isn't fun anymore. Like we're not, <laughs> we don't have to have the three jokes per page. Like we're now we're, <laughs> we're talking about defamation and all this stuff, you know? Yeah. And what was it kind of, you talked a little bit about sandbox and I just feel like mm-hmm. you're talking about kind of the, the breaking down of the show, breaking down an episode. What's it like to be able to just be like, oh, let's introduce the wrecking crew. Oh, wait a minute. We're continuing this law of Wong always kind of getting away. And this is us introducing mm-hmm. someone he can't get away from. How fun is it to be able to kind of like delve into what is probably the most popular sandbox in the kind of cinematic <laughs> world right now? Yeah. I mean, look, for, I mean, obviously I was speaking as a staff writer who was a super, super into like the, the MCU. For me, it was a dream. Like it was yeah. cool. Like it was cool being like, you know, at one point we had like, we had like, three we had like two different whiteboards one like the big board that had like the story stuff and one like a flip one that would just have like characters or bits that we with that we would just like pitch like hey what if this character showed up like what if we did this like just like basically like a, a list of like blue sky ideas that we have for like um episodes or like or like dumb cases over the week or whatever and like we also had two of the execs were in the room marvel execs so like whenever we'd be like hey is this character available we would just say them and then like it was like the the mintats and like doing like their eyes would roll the back of their head and then it come back down like actually this character's being used in this so you can't use it or like this character's still being owned by like sony so we can't Mm -hmm. use them like all that stuff so like it was cool just being like they're able to throw out like ideas and like or like characters and like they'd be like yes yes no no yes yes like um it, it was like it was like i really i felt like i was like um doing like trip like comic book nerd trivia like what obscure character can i find that hasn't been scooped up by somewhere else that we could use and like it was it was just so fun like just being like yell out like different yelling out like different comic book characters like yeah. a group of like nine other adults that are getting paid to do this for a, like, <laughs> the dream. Ask for a better job yeah. <laughs> the dream. and when it comes to like obviously you get there you break it down you see melissa's great pitches what was it like to then see patty guggenheim who plays madison come and bring that character to life in just like the most perfect way uh dude so like yes like we read the script in in the room and then like we we left and then like you know the show shoots so like literally the first time i saw it was like basically in the theater like that was like like i had seen some like roughs and dailies and stuff that you know but like i didn't get to see like the actual performance but like you're watching it you're like oh fuck patty is so good i mean if you don't know like she's a fantastic comedic performer and she does a bunch of groundling stuff out here but also she was in uh the show florida girls which i think ran for like two or three seasons but like she was fantastic on that so like she was great like i i I remember i think we ran into i think we i ran into her at like the the after party and we were just like oh my god like you not only did you like kill it but like you elevated the material Mm -hmm. so much like you made it Madison like I cannot picture anyone else being Madison besides maybe Melissa because she would did in the room but like like just she was so good and she was so fun and like it's one of those things where like you want to just like now I just want to like watch the whole series of like Wongers and Madison yes! like, I just want to watch yes! that for like for like six issues or six episodes or whatever like, see what they get on to get no on to. completely and also like what I love about it is it's like Patty I hope you're prepared because like that has a kind of Jimmy Woo style. Like you feel like this yeah. is going to be a character who's going to be coming back. Actually, when I spoke, <laughs> when I spoke to Jessica at the press junket, she'd said like her dream was to do like a Wongers and Madison, like Halloween special, <laughs> which I'm just like, That'd be so fun. how good would that be? What would like, if just playing, because obviously this yeah. is, this is absolutely playing. No, Zig is not revealing anything, but like yeah. in your dream of the sandbox and everything, what would you like to do with Madison? Like if you could do anything and throw out any <laughs> wild character. You know what you want to say? I want to see Madison on vacation with Wong. Like I want to see them mm. on like a cruise ship and like, oh, there's yeah. like, 
like they, there's a cruise ship maybe there's like a you know dazzler is like the onboard yeah, like, yeah, musical yeah, yeah, yeah. guest or whatever <laughs> and like there's no real high stakes it's just them on a cruise like being like uh like a begrudging couple for like you know 30 minutes or however long the actual thing is or like i want to see them like i want to see like they they run out of like shrimp cocktails like wong does his gang oh, yeah. signs and like pops more down to, like the mirror <laughs> dimension like i just want to see them existing in like a confined space on the ship for like an episode yeah like, that's all that i want to see that sounds perfect and also we would definitely we know wong wong as loves karaoke so i could definitely see yeah, them yeah, doing yeah, some yeah. good performances maybe some oh, dance you know what? classes you know what? hip hip the hypno hustler breaks in and, like he starts <laughs> to steal so it becomes a a four-way fight between wonger's dazzler versus hypno hustler that sounds absolutely brilliant. I'm like, Feige, let's, let's green light it. I, I would love to watch. You could do so much fun with that as well with the cruise ship. Because like, you know, they do these like comic book cruise ships where like cartoonists oh, yeah. and comic book creators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have it where there's like, they just so happen to be on one where it's loads of like ex superheroes yeah, or like yeah, minor yeah. level superheroes. So you've got yeah, people yeah, doing yeah. little signings and everything. <laughs> oh, that could be so fun. One oh, was like, so fun. this is the wrong cruise. He does not want to be on that cruise. Wongers, have some fun. (laughs) Yeah. Come on, Wongers. we got to go watch, you know, Endgame. Do you know what happens at the end? (laughs) It's just such a delightfully fun episode. Yeah. And do you have like a, when you got to sit there in the theater and and at the El Capitan at Disney's theater and watch them at the premiere, did you have like a favorite moment or something that kind of surprised you from any of the first episodes uh yes so like i seeing the 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 meg the stallion tag was was so fucking cool because like you know i don't we had i think we had like a different tag in the original like Mm -hmm. writer's room and i think that's something that that gal added later but like remember she told me i remember she was telling me about like yeah we got we got meg the stallion like don't tell me anything else i just cannot wait to see what (laughs) it is and like and like seeing it like actually happen like seeing the crowd like lose their mind of that was so so fun and so like cool like like oh yeah the jokes are like landing and like it's it's one of those things where, like, it, like when we when we like left the, the screening, we're like, "Oh man, that's the one that's going to like break Twitter for like, mm-hmm. a week." Like, this course is going to be impossible for like <laughs> for seven days when like you're just going to see nothing but that GIF, yep. <laughs> time after time. And it was true. And now everyone, <laughs> now that we know that she Hulk can twerk, and we've seen her do the Hulk clap, now we need to see those powers yeah. put together, yeah. and she would definitely be able to beat Thanos. We all yeah, know it's that. Too much power. Too like, much you power. It, yeah. <laughs> And kind of like another thing that I just think is so wonderful about this show that you've kind of touched on with yours and Zeb's roles, but I think it comes in on every level. Like when I was speaking to to Jessica and to Kat about like building in the comic book aspects yeah. is so important, but to do it from like Jen's perspective, which I love mm-hmm. kind of that we saw with the Wrecking Crew. Mm-hmm. How much kind of intention, I'm guessing by having Zeb and you there, it was a lot, but how intentionally did it feel when you were in that room kind of, that you were purposefully trying to make this feel like a comic book. Cause it feels like single issues. It feels like that yeah, story yeah, yeah. of the week. It feels like, yeah, you get something bigger if you watch it, but you could watch any of them and have fun. Yeah. I mean, I definitely like, obviously we had a fantastic head writer show which was yesterday. Like you, you, I'm sure she told you her pedigree, but like she worked in the comic oh, yeah. shop since she was like 16. She like, she, she's a huge, huge comic fan. Um, particularly just like, not just superhero stuff, but, like the indie stuff. Like she loves love and rocket. Like she's a huge fan. Um, also, like one of the other writers, uh, um, Jackie Gale, she wrote, um, her and her sister wrote this third episode with Megan Thee Stallion. Like, she was also a huge comic book nerd. So, like, you have, like, you know, you have it coming down from the top with Jessica and then Zeb and then me and Jackie and, like, all the other people in the room. It was just, like, it was great. Like, like you said, like, you have whole days where, like, you're just talking about, like, 
what characters are would be fun to like see interact with like Jen and like mm-hmm. the idea is that like you know Jessica you know she would like she had written she has written so much television like she has written truly like <laughs> so, she like she has fully put in her ten thousand hours fifteen times over so like mm-hmm. she was like very much like their edict was like we wanted to feel like a TV show like a classic sitcom where like. Yeah, there's like a little bit of a through line, but the idea is that like, yeah, you could just pop up in any episode and like, yeah. oh, cool, this is what's happening this week. And like, it's been really cool seeing that like transition to like the final end of it. But like, yeah, like we, we would have full, full, full like weeks of blue skying where we just talk about like the fun comic book stuff that would make us like super happy and super nerdy. And then like, after we would get done yelling about it, they're like, all right, we have to do actual work now. We can't keep <laughs> Real <talking> TV about- <laughs> stuff. No, that, that makes so much sense though, that that was Jessica's intention about the TV thing. Because- mm-hmm. I've spoken to so many people, comic book people, not comic book people, like who are mm. just like, this feels like it could be running on ABC for nine seasons. Yeah. Like yeah, it yeah. feels like a classic TV mm-hmm. sitcom. Did you go back and kind of like dig into anything like Boston League or Ally McBeal, like personally to kind of get the vibe of of what you guys were going for? Yeah. So before we started, Gal sent out a like uh like the 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 bible for like the show and then like hey you should watch these series because this is really what like it's gonna be like we're really grabbing a lot of stuff from this but like you know fleabag was obviously mm-hmm. a big one for like the fourth wall breaking because it was like such a fun way of like doing it and like it played into like um fleabag's character for like the for the arc and like i mean i could yell about fleabag forever so i won't do that but like fleabag, <laughs> no but um, you can see the fleabag influence on the show yeah. for sure even the way that something that i think is really cool that the show kind of learns from fleabag is like the way that the fourth wall breaks can impact other things yes. that are going on, yes. which isn't so mm-hmm. much something you can explore as well in comics, but in TV. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that first introduction of Jen properly breaking the wall where she has no idea what's yeah. going on behind her. And at the end, she just agrees to something. Yeah, and yeah, she's yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's really cool. For sure. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Uh, I'll, uh, she's yeah. like, I'll be anxious about that for months. Like wondering what I just <laughs> yeah, said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did I agree to? Uh, so Fleabag, uh, Better Call Saul, because it like, yes, it's a drama, but like, you know, those shows are so funny. Like yeah. they, I mean, they could very easily, if they, if you cut them down to 22 minutes, they could just be straight up comedy if mm-hmm. they want to. And coincidentally, um, the OJ Simpson, um, um, uh, was it, was it? Oh, the Ryan Murphy Fox? American yes, crime story. Um, a, yeah. Yeah. A lot of it dealing with like, um, um, uh, I can't remember her, her the the character's name, but like a lot of the uh, a through line of the show is like dealing with like this lady's persona inside the court and like how the media portrays her outside mm. of the court system, and like that's you know obviously like that's something that's been seated in, in Shield. So like those are like the three big things that like we really were really um influential. At least Gal told us to like to watch mm-hmm. to get prepared for like the mindset that we were going to come in for the room. That's really cool, and it's nice to kind of all be on the same page when you're looking for influences. Yeah. Obviously, you can all bring in your own things that you love and your own mm-hmm. style. It's the joy of a writer's room. But yeah. that's really cool. And so something else that I think is kind of must have been wild about this show is a lot of the MCU shows so far have been pretty contained, even though they've con- they've included massive characters, obviously, and we've seen yeah. huge Avengers, all different kinds of people. Then we've seen new introductions. She-Hulk seems like it would be this like you said, sitcom focused, interior, funny. But within mm. the first episode, you're introducing Bruce Banner. You're bringing in like big, <laughs> heavy, original Infinity Saga players. Then you're bringing in Wong. So it's like no joke. Also, Emil Blonsky. So you're really getting to delve into the Incredible Hulk, which often gets kind of forgotten in the in the history of the mm. MCU. 
What was that like? Because it's a whole different level than just introducing a new character in kind of a spin-off show is, oh, by the way, you're also going to have to make Bruce, and you're going to tease things about Bruce Banner <laughs> that could be game-changing for the whole MCU, you know? Yeah, I, I remember reading um, the the pilot, or the, I can't remember if it was the pilot or the pitch doc that Gal had put together, but I remember seeing like, you know, this is what the Hulk is doing, and this is how Emil goes into it. And then like in the room when they were like breaking the episode, I'm like, oh shit, the Hulk's going to be in like our TV show. Like this is crazy, right? <laughs> I was like, like the like the Hulk is going to be in a spaceship <laughs> in our TV show. That's that's insane. I can't believe this is like an actual thing that's going to happen. So like, it was it was wild being like, oh yeah, because that's when I, that's one of those thing moments when I'm like, oh yeah, I guess this. I forget that this is like a Marvel TV show. Like, if you want to have the Hulk appear in a thing, you can just ask them and like, yeah, Ruffalo would love to do more Hulk stuff. So like, we would get it in like that, or like you know when you're like, yeah, you guys can you can use matt murdoch i was like we get to use matt are you wait what this is crazy like really this is that's a real the, thing yeah. yeah that's the wild it was, it was one. like it was so crazy like it was just again so surreal to be like oh man like we're gonna have the hulk and she hulk talk to each other and like that's such a weird th- like as a like in your nerd brain you're like oh wow this is like a real thing this is how it happens like they just get a bunch of people in a room and they're excited mm-hmm. about a thing and they they ask someone and they like yeah you can do that and then like soon and then like three years later mark ruffalo was like drinking daiquiris on a beach with like his cousin <laughs> jen like it's it's such a it's so weird like you, you think it'd be so much like much harder to connect those dots from, mm-hmm. like a to a to c but it's like yeah if you ask it it's available like you can make sure. it happen which is like crazy yeah i guess in that way it kind of and you all have experienced this now because now you're also like a, a comic writer on a brilliant mm-hmm. uh spider punk with just mason like it kind of it's so similar to how comics are made because yeah in comics like somebody will have had a really cool idea that maybe they didn't think they just kind of offhandedly put into a comic yeah, book yeah. 20 years ago. And then someone else will pick it up 20 years later and be like, well, actually, what if it was this? <laughs> so I love yeah. to hear that it's very similar to that kind of like picking up and expanding on what other great people have done before you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's funny. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, that is very much like how a lot of the characters came for Spider-Punk. That they were like, I mean, obviously, I'm a huge Taskmaster fan in general. Of course. Like, I love I loved a, a, the Misfits, but like they were like, you know, we had Captain Anarchy and like he was only in like a couple of like a couple of shorts. And I was like, yeah, this is a cool character. Like, but I also want my team to be like all people of color. So like, yeah, let's just make him like native and change his last name from Morgantown to Morning Dew, right? Like you could do that. And yeah. Like, yeah, great. Do it. Like, yeah, that's a that's the whole purpose. Like, that's the whole idea. Like, even with the I can't say it, but like I think I'm writing now, like there's a character that I'm introducing and the whole my hope is that like further down the line people that are from that culture can like take mm-hmm. that character and like expand on it like i'm really just like putting like a little seed that hopefully someone else can take and make it bigger and better ideas that like i would never even possibly think of i love that so much and that's yeah that's the joy it's the it's the ultimate continuous collaboration and i think yeah. that it can be easy to imagine that that wouldn't be the case in like a huge multi-million dollar billion dollar franchise but i love that these shows especially are giving creators that space to pick up on those little moments yeah. to have someone in the room who says, Hey, what about the wrecking crew? And yeah, someone like how goes, crazy is it that like that Carol Danvers just shows up at the last episode of like Miss Marvel? Like how cool is that? Oh you know, my, like, let's, I literally die. And also like, <laughs> yeah. even that's a great example of um, something I really love about these shows that I think is what's so unprecedented about them just in general, in any mm-hmm. space, not even just the superhero space. We've rarely seen TV shows 
and movies that are so interconnected and actually have yeah. such a huge impact. So Captain Marvel turning up, it was so good and it was yeah. so comics. I had to explain <laughs> to so many different people what happened. I was like, no, Miss Marvel is not shape-shifting. It's yeah, all yeah, about yeah. these things called the Negabands. Don't get me started on Rick Jones. Like, and it yeah, became yeah. this whole thing. But then also like Bisha and, you know, Sana and everyone mm-hmm. getting yeah, yeah. to introduce mutation. And, yeah, and getting right? to have that the, right? the theme play like yeah that is so exciting and how has that aspect of this been not just being able to play with the sandbox of the past and these characters you love and kind of get to be in this Disneyland like you said every day but how does it feel to imagine the things that you're seeding and how in five years you could be sitting in a theater after you've been writing something else, <laughs> won all your Emmys now, you're just chilling, and you see something that you established in this show. What's that it's kind of the, feel like? Dude, it's it's so weird. So like when I, I was in, um, I went to Savannah College of Art Design for my grad, my, my grad degree in film. And like I, I met this dude there who coincidentally was from North Carolina like me. His name was Andy Cervanta. Like, we were the guys that were always watching, like, we're going to see Garden of the Galaxy. We're going to go see Ant-Man. Like, we were just, like, huge, like, Marvel fans. Like, I remember, like, we were roommates, and, like, he had, like, one of those, like, Iron Man hot toys in like, <laughs> his room. Like, we were broke as fuck, but, like, he decided <laughs> to save his money and buy one of those. Like, those were, like, those were, like, what we did. So, like, it was so cool going to see those. And then, like, you know, flash, fast forward, like, 10 years, like, we're on set together. Like, I was on set, and, like, Andy was, like, working on this show like he works on a bunch of like the marvel shows because he's in atlanta and like it was so cool like just wow. sitting there like we're sitting there like just like talking and like we see like you know gal was like talking to tatiana about notes or whatever and like, we're like this is crazy like this is surreal like you did it we went yeah we did it like we went from like being fans to like working on the thing and like we're, like i remember like we each took a picture of, like the first time the credits roll and like send it to one another it was so so cool uh but like yeah it's so wild to be like oh yeah maybe a thing that i write will like be referenced or like would it be cool if, like, you see She-Hulk pop up at, like, Avengers 7 or whatever? The oh, thing you is, know like, it's going to happen. Like, I, I know <laughs> you, you know? can't say anything because we don't want people to think you're confirming things. But let's be real. I've had so many people message me and be like, does this mean A-Force is happening? If She-Hulk oh, is yeah, here, does so this dope. mean A-Force? I think the, the I, people are still so excited about the idea of different people getting to lead teams. And I don't know yeah. if it needs to be as binary as it has had to be in comics before. Yeah, but yeah. like you said, like teams of people of color teams that are predominantly yeah, led yeah. by women like that's the stuff that people want to see and in a really brilliant way she hulk introduces that not just because she hulk like was the original leader of a force which was the all f- first all-female avengers team um mm-hmm. though not by name of the title but they are the avengers <laughs> in the comics but also because the show is just mad inclusive because that's mm-hmm. just what we care about and what people yeah, like yeah. jessica care about it's mm-hmm. really cool to hear you say I mean, I haven't gotten to speak to Jessica a lot, but it's it's very cool to hear you say that she loves Love and Rockets because that's like my jam. And Dude. so it's, I have Love and Rockets tattoos. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's like, I love that we're at a place now where our peers are people who grew up with this stuff and they don't just mm-hmm. love one type of comic. They don't, it's not yeah. the who, oh, do you love Marvel and DC? It's like, you love both, mm-hmm. but you also love Love and Rockets or you love Image. Your, your, what's your special topic? Is it the founding of Image Comics? Is it the yeah, history yeah, yeah, of yeah. Saga? Is it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Hellboy? I love that yeah. that's the space we're in now where like this thing that people used to tell us, oh, please stop talking about that. Or like, <laughs> just like go talk to your friends. Like, now everyone's yeah. coming to us and they're like, so what does this mean? Like, which comic yeah, should yeah. I read? It's kind of a joy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she put me onto a bunch of great stuff. Like, she put me on Eleven Rockets, um, Dorkin or Dork. Oh like, yeah, uh, the, yeah. Like, she put me. She like, like I said, like she spent years working at a comic shop, and like 
that's back before like you know you had like social media so mm-hmm. like you would have to go to like cons to meet other indie comics or indie providers or whatever or be like oh there, we don't have this but like there's a shop two towns over there that's yeah. where you go to find like the weird cool indie stuff go there like oh cool i'll do that so like it, it was just dope and also like you know it, it, you know you'd be on your lunch break so like the, the marvel studios office is like you walk in and there's like all of Iron Man's first like three suits, of course, like, crazy as fuck. So like you walk around, they just have props and stuff. But like in the kitchen area, they just have like their wall of comics. So it was just like basically every trade paperback you could ever possibly want to read. And like you know, sometimes like you'd be on your lunch break, like oh, you know what? I haven't read like Secret Wars. Like I'm just gonna read that. Or like man, you know what? I always wanted to see like what uh, what uh, you know Kamala's first run was like. I haven't mm-hmm. read that in a while. So like you go back and read that. So like it really is just like being like oh man, like. These people that like made comic books that got paid absolutely garbage and still get paid garbage. But like it's cool being like, oh, yeah, like this is like honestly like this built this empire. Yeah. Like, these writers and artists and editors put in editors and all, all people that made this stuff like built this imp- empire just by like working together and making really cool, cool pop art. Like that's the yeah. thing that's just like, you know, you what you did. You don't think about it. You know, it's just like so cool seeing that like that's that's where like art can lead to. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I remember the first time when I really started to realize that the two worlds like do cross pollinate. They did mm-hmm. this book. Uh, it was like a it was a revamped version of an old Marvel title, Strange Tales, which is obviously that's like a, a very mm. premier title. But they did a short anthology collection version of it where each story was like a weird story by an indie cartoonist. So you mm-hmm. have Gilbert Hernandez drawing Scarlet Witch, and it's like Gilbert, and he's drawing like Wanda, and they're on like a beach yeah, party, yeah, yeah. and I was just yeah. like. Oh, I was like, these are not two separate things. Like everybody yeah. who makes these, the Hernandez bros make comics because they love these things. Yes. And yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. Marvel will come to them and be like, hey, what are you saying? Yeah. And I mean, Gilbert did a, even a Wonder Woman comic. So it's so cool, like you said. And I, I, I love that even in this huge Hollywood space and in a studio, which is so much outside of what publishing is doing, mm-hmm. it's really lovely to know that they have those books. And even yeah. if, like you said, you know, we have many dreams about how people would get compensated yeah. uh, in an ideal world, but we, it's nice to know that they have them there. They're not trying to make that separation that we yeah, also yeah. worry about. You know, we always yeah, want people yeah. to remember like these other stories mm-hmm. that influence when it, when it came to She-Hulk actually, cause you mentioned the Dan Slot run, which we've talked about mm-hmm. a lot on the show and I've written extensively about, were there any other comics that you revisited She-Hulk or otherwise that really like got you into the zone of the show? Yeah, I reread uh, Mark's uh, uh, Daredevil mm-hmm. run because I've been wanting to read it for a while because I was a huge fan of the show. And I was like, man, you know, I haven't really read much Daredevil outside of like Frank yeah. Miller's run. And I was like, I like, it's like a modern take. And like, mm-hmm. I remember buying like the trade paperback, like the first three issues or whatever, or three copies of that. And like reading that, being like, man, Daredevil fucking rocks. Like, yep. I forgot how fucking cool Daredevil is. And like, you know, the, the seminal Hawkeye run, like, I reread Hawkeye because i haven't read it since it first came out and like that book is so fucking good it's like unbelievable like so fraction good. and aha are an unstoppable team yes and you just see the absolute aesthetic artistic story mm-hmm. narrative influence that it had on the show and it had on those two yeah. characters is unbelievable mm-hmm. yeah and that mark wade run is so good and the uh paulo manuel riviera's art is like mm-hmm. unreal did you, this is just me giving you, uh, I'm, I'm not quizzing you. I'm just giving you a recommendation. Yeah. Did you ever read the Charles Saul Daredevil run? No, I did okay. not. I heard yeah, it was yeah, good yeah. though. You should read it because Charles, he did a brilliant She-Hulk run and a brilliant Daredevil run. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, the best of both because he was a lawyer. Yeah. So he brings that, that yeah. to the vibes. The Charles Saul one, to me, 
I feel like spiritually that She-Hulk book is very in line with what you guys were doing. So definitely, mm-hmm. and the art in there is like unreal as well. Like it's just, yeah. we're blessed. There's so many brilliant artists. I mean, you know, because you're getting art back with Spider-Man in it, you oh, know? So f- <laughs> there's like Justin Mason is such a phenomenal artist. And it's crazy so to me that Spider-Punk was his first book, his first Marvel book. Like I cannot wait that he's like drawing everything on the planet like he's such a cool dude his like, art is so fucking good like it yeah. blows my mind whenever you know i'm a big fan of that book but getting to see those pages and those characters uh, and the stuff you guys did is just it's so exciting dude, we're in a we're in five, a new era of, of issue five comes out this month and i think you're there's a particular like section of like art that he does that i think you're gonna fucking ah, lose your mind it's i'm so, so cool. excited about it i mean <laughs> as a writer the best thing in the world is like getting that art back you know when from the artist so what was it you know we kind of touched on it but how does that feeling translate like how does it compare to kind of getting to see a a rough cut of something you wrote come to life for the first time uh it's it's i mean this is the word of the day is it's surreal yeah it's it's, because like you know, you you make like a little rinky dinky stuff, like oh yeah, I've, I've made some short films, like I did this, but like I made a zine, like, <laughs> yeah, I made a zine, but like being like oh, like um, Justin sends in like these fantastic designs. You're like the first time I saw like his Taskmaster, uh, oh, uh, I was like, so good. he was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, you know, I I'm thinking maybe we could make him look like the fiend. He's like, say less, and then he came back <laughs> with that. I was like, this is so cool, or like his Kamala designs, like um. Yeah, she has like the embiggen on like brass knuckles. Like yeah. that was it's just it's, it's just so, so cool. Like it's just so cool. And like it's it's so it's been so fun. Like I personally for me, like I think they say the same thing too, but like it's the most fun we've ever had, like writing anything. Mm-hmm. Like like the team is so great. Uh Danny the editor is great. Uh 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 Justin Jason is great. Uh uh Justin the 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 uh, the, the colorist is fantastic. Yeah. Like the lettering is Travis. The lettering the letter is, is just unbelievable. Like that I remember I messaged you and I was like who is the letterer? And you were yes. like, it's Travis. And I was like, oh my God. Like, th- yeah. that's, th- I haven't seen a book in a long time from a big two publisher where the lettering feels so much apart. It's that, like, it feels yeah. like you're a kid watching Batman 66, like the bad <laughs> path. It comes, it just feels like part of the story. Yeah, it's such a joy. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, and I'm excited that you, I know you can't talk about it, but I'm excited that you're still writing more comics. Cause to me, uh, yeah, I was yeah. like, Spider Punk feels like, that's going to be the ongoing, you know, they, they, that's oh, the classic. I would love nothing more, that, dude. Uh, fingers crossed. Cause we know yeah. how it is. The, the way the big two works now is um, yeah, they, yeah. they announce a lot of mini series and mm-hmm. people get super stoked for them and they love them. And occasionally we get lucky enough that those might become ongoings or get continued. So I'm yeah. crossing my fingers cause spider punk uh, sells thanks, out in I my shop. Nothing more. You guys nothing are more. such a stellar team. So <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's really exciting. It reminds me a lot of like, when I, I used to also work in a comic book shop. And no. Yeah, I, I know, shocking. <laughs> Can you believe it? She doesn't know anything about them. Why was she there? Um, but I was there just post, like, the Marvel Now relaunch that included Miss yeah, Marvel, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kamala mm-hmm. Khan's first appearance, The Young Avengers yeah. by Jamie yeah. uh, McKelvey and Kieran Gillen, one of my favorite comics of all time, same with Miss Marvel. I feel like now with things like Spider-Punk, with Hellions, mm-hmm. I feel like we're in another exciting space like that again, where we're getting to see new iterations of classic characters, where we're getting to see Mm -hmm. things that feel like they're going to become formative and impactful going forward. Yeah, that's the way I, I, I mean, I've yelled about this with you both on the show and off the show, but that's how I felt with like Kelly Thompson's Black Widow. Oh, yeah. I'm like, like, oh, this is like what Hawkeye did for Hawkeye. 
this is what Black Widow, this is what Kelly's Black Widow is going to do for Black Widow. Like, mm-hmm. it's such a fun, exciting, different book. Uh, it's like, I cannot wait for this new era of like writers to get in and yeah. artists to get in, to, like make these like new, new generation of, of comic books. Yeah, it's really cool. And you are that for the MCU now, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I somehow weaseled my way right? in. I didn't see it coming. You did it. You did the dream and you just talked about <laughs> stuff you loved. You were funny as fuck, which you are. And Jessica was like, oh, this is going to be good for us. And it was because the show is so great. Okay. I could talk to you about this all day, but before we go, thank you so much mm-hmm. for coming because this was me. a joy. Um, mm-hmm. And it will not be the last time that Zig is here <laughs> to talk about She-Hulk. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, with that said, what can you kind of tease that's going to be exciting about the rest of the season? You don't have to tease anything that you're going to get in trouble <laughs> about. But is there yeah. like stuff that you're stoked for people to see? Like, I, I, is yes. there like a what the fuck moment that you can't wait for? Yes, there's uh, uh, a Yes, there's a very fun, big what the fuck moment that I will say nothing else about, but I am <laughs> very excited about it. Uh, I think people are going to love it. I think you in particular are going to love it. It's uh, very fun. It's from the twisted mind of Jessica Gal. That's all yeah, I can say. It's great. It's really, really fucking fun. It's it's really cool. And like even the second half of the season is gets somehow even better and funnier it's just it's uh, uh i'm obviously i'm biased with the calls come from inside the house but like of course there's some, some really fun shit towards the end of the end of the season yeah well i can't wait and i'm so i'm so happy for you because you're just so great and the show is so <laughs> great weird. and i love to be able to see people getting the show and all the funny sexy she hulk memes that we get to send <laughs> each other oh and, yes yeah. our group chats are so diabolic at this point it's Dude. just like that's the, the weirder the post, we will send them directly to, to Gal. It's very fun. So, yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. And can't wait to see your episode, which is coming up in the, the second half of the season. Yes. Big thank you to Jason for joining us from vacation to dig deep into House of the Dragon. We know you love your maester, so we had to be here to talk about it. And of course, thank you to Cody Ziegler, who we absolutely love. As Cody is not here, I will plug things for him. Go follow Cody. He's great. Cody's an incredible writer. Cody was nominated for Robot Chicken recently, nominated for an Emmy. Cody is writing She-Hulk. And Cody's going to be back talking more about She-Hulk. I am, as always, at Rosie Marks with an X on Instagram and Letterboxd. You can also hear me here. Sometimes introducing the podcast now, but most of the time just talking about comics. And very exciting news that most of you know, but still. X-Ray Vision has a new home. The Take Line YouTube and Twitter channels are now dedicated to all things XRV. So go check out XRV Pod on Twitter and X-Ray Vision on YouTube. Plus our really, really lovely X-Ray Vision Discord, which I just cannot overhype as being such a cool chill space me and jason are in there a lot we talk about movies tv games sports it's just generally great so also if you heard us the maester today and you were like wow i have a question that you need jason to answer which honestly is me every time when i watch house of the dragon you can send an email to ask at gmail.com and remember we love five star reviews five star reviews are the best five star reviews are wonderful five star reviews make it easier for other people to find us. And if you write a five-star review that we really love, then we might read it out on the air. Like this absolutely delightful review that MC Work left. I love this show. X-Ray Vision is effervescent, encyclopedic, informed, and compassionate. Rosie Knight and Jason Concepcion are unabashed in sharing their absolute joy for comics, 
fantasy and science fiction and pop culture as both fans and creators. The added bonus is that they are able to extend the conversation into the real life realms of business and politics that drive the creation, distribution and consumption of it all. My only gripe is the seeming preference of Star Wars over Star Trek, but that's a me problem. Look, we thank you first of all. This is the best review. I love to hear this review. This is exactly the kind of thing that we love and that we try and do every day. All of us, our amazing team, Chris, Sol, Delon, Vasilis. This is like what we're always trying to do, Jason, of course. But also, we know that the Star Trek is missing. People have said it. We have Star Trek experts in our field. You may hear about a Star Trek sooner rather than later. Also, Star Trek's cool. So yeah, sorry about that, Em, but thank you for the good review. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time. Bye-bye.